context of a project we've got called Energy in America, where we try to think not only about how the energy posture of the United States is changing, um, but also the economic, social, environmental costs and benefits of the transformation in a local and regional level. And we can think of no more important place to have this conversation than in the Permian Basin region of the country, uh, Texas, New Mexico. It is really a remarkable story about what's going on there, one that we don't think Washington focuses enough on and one that we really wanted to be able to sort of bring uh, to the conversation today. So we're very pleased to have all of you here today. Uh, this is an on-the-record conversation. We will allow time for questions. We've got kind of a tight schedule, so we'll try and move swiftly through so we can make sure all of you can get your questions in. If you're watching online and you would like to ask a question, please go ahead uh, and tweet at us, and we'll make sure that we can uh, try and answer those in the course of the day. This first panel, which I'll introduce in just a minute, is going to be the industry's perspective on the Permian Basin. It's been a wild ride, so to speak, from the early days of production to where we are today to where we're going in the future. One of the real tricks about the Permian Basin and, and, and U.S. title production in particular, it's been really hard to forecast. We've, in fact, under-forecasted uh, what production is going to be for a long period of time. And so regularly checking in on what those production outlooks look like is a big part of doing the analysis about what that's going to mean for, for just U.S. production, what it's going to mean for economic activity, but also what it's going to mean for global oil markets. So we'll talk a little bit about uh, a range of those things. The second panel will focus more explicitly on that production outlook and, and uh, some of the near-term constraints and opportunities. And then the third panel finally will look at some of the social, economic, and environmental uh, impacts and how those are being managed. So. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first uh, panel, Scott Sheffield, who's the president and CEO of Pioneer Natural Resources, Steve Green, who's the president of Chevron North America Exploration and Production, and then Andrew Gould, who's the advisory board chair chairman of a company called Keros and former uh, CEO of a company called Schlumberger. So each of these gentlemen have been here before, have a long history of being uh, uh, in, active in uh, not only the oil and gas industry, but certainly uh, in tide oil development in the United States. I'm going to ask each of them to sort of talk a little bit about um, their, their outlook on the evolution of the Permian Basin, uh, where we are today versus where we were in the past, where we expect to go, and then we'll delve into some of the issues that they, that they raise. So Scott, maybe I could turn to you if you'd get us started off. Thanks, Sarah. It's great to be here and be back. I think it's about three years ago I was, you had a nice interview with me. But uh, I spent my whole life in the Permian Basin, so since I was about 22, actually during college, I worked out there during three uh, college summers. So uh, I've, been knowing, I've been out there, but getting right into production, uh, I guess most of y'all know I came out on record in 2013 that the Permian's going to 8 million barrels a day. And of course, nobody believed me at that time, not even Saudi or the OPEC countries. And uh, so the Permian, if y'all know, uh, bottomed out around 800,000 barrels a day. It's up to 4.2. EIA is showing the latest month at 4.4 million barrels a day. And so it is still going to get to eight at some point in time, but I think it's, it's definitely slowing its pace. So what's changed in the last 12 months? Uh, it did add about a million barrels of oil per day uh, just this past year. Uh, so what's slowed besides pipeline constraints is the change in investor mindset. So investor mindset, uh, as y'all know, y'all have seen the articles about the, uh, the return, return on capital employed by the industry has been very poor. Uh, there's no uh, cash flow. There's no cash flow to, uh, back to the investor, investors. Uh, private equity is having a tough time. 
There's 427, 427 private equity companies upstream in the U.S., and uh, they have no exit mechanism now. And so they're all consolidating. They're cutting back capital. And so the public independents like Pioneer uh, have all slowed down um, in all the shell plays and the Permian also. Uh, so the free cash flow model uh, is a key driver uh, driving up return on capital employed. And so I think that's probably taken out about 300,000 barrels of oil per day off the marketplace going forward. So I was pretty much um, a firm believer that the Permian could grow about a million barrels a day over the next several years. And I've lowered my expectations down to about six to 700,000 barrels of oil per day. So you got the free cash flow model that everybody has taken off the market. You got the parent-child relationships. A lot of companies have, don't have the inventory that Pioneer has. We have 20,000 drilling locations and over 10 billion barrels of resource, uh, defined resource. And, uh, and so, but most companies don't have that type of inventory. Um, and so people are starting to drill with shorter inventories that are drilling these child wells. I call it infill drilling as an ex-reservoir engineer. It's really just infill drilling, downspacing. And they're starting to see that uh, it greatly affects the uh, reserves from the original well, the parent well. And so a lot of people are downspacing. That's going to affect performance. Uh, and so I've lowered my expectations for the Permian. It's still going to get to eight. It may take another three to four years longer um, to get there. Uh, uh, on, the, uh, on the gas, natural gas side, uh, which is very important, I've been on record saying that the flaring is an is a, uh, important issue to stop. Uh, I know Rusty will talk more about natural gas pipelines, but we're excited to see three natural gas pipelines adding about six BCF a day. And so I get asked a lot about the gas oil ratio question. Since Pioneer had one publicly about two years ago in 2017, so uh, since we have over 7,000 vertical wells and I've seen what's happened to the gas oil ratio, the gas oil ratio increases with time. So right now, I think EIA has basically 4.2 to 4.4 million barrels of oil per day and about 14 BCF a day. Mm -hmm. And so that's a little over a 3,000 gas oil ratio. And my belief that the gas oil ratio will expand to 4,000 over time. And so uh, I would expect uh, the Permian Basin, that's including the wet gas, the liquids inside that stream, it's not dry gas, the numbers I'm giving, but that we could easily get up to about 35 BCF a day in the Permian Basin up from 14. I'll stop there, Sarah, and let Steve take over. All right, even when you're more pessimistic, you're still optimistic, so that's good. I'm gonna try and do that too. <laughs> Steve, what, what Well, you thank say? you, Sarah. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back at CSIS again. Chevron's been a partner and supporter of CSIS for uh, about 30 years now on a range of subjects around the globe. And uh, we're pleased to participate in these forums because fact-based discussions are uh, important to move the industry and energy issues in the country forward. Um, I'll start, uh, un unlike Scott, I haven't spent my whole career in the Permian Basin, but I've been in and out of it a few times and some of the other parts of the globe as well. Uh, it is an amazing, uh, the transformation that's taken place in the Permian in the last, uh, give or take a decade. Uh, uh, in Chevron alone, we've been in the Permian Basin, either as Chevron or some of the uh, companies that have uh, merged with Chevron over time, like Texaco, Gulf, Unical, uh, for over 100 years. And uh, it, it's uh, been a very, very prolific basin in the industry, an important asset for the country. Uh, and through the combination of 
data, uh, refined techniques, uh, more efficient drilling techniques, uh, hydraulic fracturing. Uh, it is now a growth engine, one of the growth engines for Chevron. Uh, we're very excited about the potential of the asset in, as a part of our portfolio. And uh, we have had a very purposeful development strategy in the Permian. Uh, a lot of the issues that Scott talked about, uh, we have set out our development strategy uh, to develop our acreage. And we've got about 2.2 million net acres across the Permian Basin. Uh, so we have a long, long queue of activity ahead of us. But we've set out our development strategy uh, to focus on the long term and ultimate uh, resource recovery. And that necessitated uh, building infrastructure, building surface facilities that uh, we could use over a long period of time. Uh, Chevron's had a no flaring policy uh, as a company policy since 2008. And uh, we're, uh, we are not actively operating routine flares in the Permian today. That doesn't mean you won't ever see a Chevron facility that has a flare. We do have to use them for safety and operational issues, but we don't bring on production uh, and flare, with flaring as a routine part of the operations. And I, I think that's, uh, and we could talk a long time, and I'm sure we will, about the potential and importance of the Permian for the country. Uh, I, I think in my 39 career, year career, uh, we've talked about peak oil at least six or seven times. And I think what that dismisses is the role of technology. And that's exactly what's happened in the Permian Basin. Um, but with that high level of activity comes some significant challenges. Uh, and, and the impact on the communities, flaring that Scott talked about, as an industry, we have to deal with that. Uh, routine, ongoing, long-term flaring is not going to be sustainable. And I would challenge my industry colleagues as an industry, we need to deal with that. Part of that, that Rusty will talk to you about, is the development of infrastructure and takeaway capacity so that those molecules can find their way uh, to markets. Um, Scott's company, my company, are uh, founding members of an organization called the Permian Strategic Partnership. And that's made up of over 20 upstream, midstream uh, uh, pipeline companies, service companies, focused on bringing the resources and the creativity of the respective companies to begin to help, help the communities address some of the social challenges that come with the pace of activity the Permian's seeing, like road safety, highway uh, infrastructure development, schools, affordable housing, access to medical care. Um, the industry didn't wait to be told. We didn't wait to be regulated. It's a voluntary organization made up of the industry. And just this summer, we announced a multi-million dollar commitment to education in Midland and, and uh, Ector County schools uh, to help solve some of the educational stress that's on the system there. So I, I'm going to wrap up and say, you know, we're very, very proud of our record in the Permian Basin. There are many capable companies there. One of the unique things about the Permian, there's everyone from a Chevron-sized company down to very, very small independent operators. That's always been a hallmark of the Permian Basin. It's been home to the breadth and depth of the industry. And as an industry, we know how to deal with these challenges. That's what we do. Uh, and we do have to deal with these constructively uh, to make sure that the communities also benefit 
from the activity and the production going on in their, their neighborhoods. So with that, I'll turn it over to Andrew. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sarah, for the invitation. Um, I'm all the more surprised in as much as you don't know, but some people in the room do know that I got shale wrong from the very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I just didn't believe the production method would be economic when I looked at the bonnet. You know, so I'm all the more admirative for what the industry has achieved. So to try and improve my knowledge, I joined a company um, called Keros which um, uses low-grade satellite imagery, radar, and uh, machine learning and AI to produce drilling and production data. And the advantage Keros has over most other estimates is that data is produced through physical observation. It's not relying on post-event reporting to constitute um, the answers that it gives. It's hugely granular. I can take it down to the level of the well. I can aggregate it to the level of the company, or I can aggregate it to the level of uh, groups of companies uh, or acreage. I'm not going to embarrass any companies this morning by showing their performance in detail. I'm only going to show aggregates. Um, Keros covers all the major shale basins. Um, we actually monitor 90,000 individual well locations, several passes by satellite a week, which allows us to keep data pretty much up to date. And of course, as you know, the, the importance of the punctual data is that oil production varies very quickly as changes in operator spending have an almost immediate effect, as Scott pointed out, on um, the levels of production. If you look at what's happened this year, in fact, most of the basins have stagnated. In other words, the actual production increases in first half year. The Williston, DJ, and Anadarko are relatively uh, um, unimportant. The Eagleford actually showed a decline. And the Permian shows an increase, but it's nothing like the increase that it showed um, in 2018. So, you know, we have to start asking ourselves why um, this is happening. If you look at um, the completions, this shows very clearly this is observed data, the blue line being the horizontal completions rates in the major basins and the black line being the oil production in the major states. It shows the direct relationship between the completion activity and oil production. And, you know, the, the um, Q4 effect of budget exhaustion and in the independence is very clear here in the drop in completion levels. If you look um, the... Uh, Satellite observation shows a true trend in well um, completions, which is unlike the data modeled from lag reporting. And what we found, and it was, took us a long time to explain it to ourselves, is that the discrepancies um, between ducks uh, and the completed event, and the reported Have I lost sound? No, I'm back was actually much bigger than we, um, we thought. And uh, it took us a long time to work out that actually a lot of the reported data which comes through frac focus is either very late or doesn't exist at all. And when we got to the end of 2018, I'm sorry, this varies considerably between types of companies. Companies that report to the SEC normally get it right. And the short black line, the short gap in the black line at the end is basically a normal reporting delay that occurs between the time people complete a well and the time they get all their reporting done. 
The other companies, particularly the private companies, there's a huge discrepancy. And in fact, we found that many private companies don't actually report at all um, to frack focus. So that forces a lot of statistics at the basin level. And that frack discrepancy for the full year 2018 was about 1,000 wells at the end of the year, I think. So if I turn now to Permian trends, I'm going to try and show some data that is an excellent predictor of short-term trends. Um, and it captures, without being able to detail it, the effect of the efficiency and the operational improvements that we've seen. It can't predict longer-term technology improvements. And most of the technology improvements we've seen in the Permian over the last few years have been incremental. You know, at the beginning, the decision that fully engineered completions were not going to be economic, which led eventually to the um, trial and error methodologies, which produced, um, produced the horizontal drilling and massive fracturing paradigm. And for, you know, geometric completions with increasing number of stages. And once this happened, productivity improvements came very quickly. Individual wells were more productive. Pad drilling enabled logistics um, that got uh, more and more efficiency into the, um, into the thing. And I've lost my page. Here we go. Uh, so uh, finally, you know, as it normally happens in this industry, drilling and production engineers just got better at what they did. So they built improvements through the fact that they had more knowledge of what they were doing and more experience. I'm not going to talk about pipeline constraints because I know Rusty Brazil is here and he knows far more about this than I do. But let me talk a little bit about rig count trends. So this is over the period of from about 13 months ago. Now what it shows um, is that uh, there are two ongoing trends that are very clear. Firstly, the share of rig count that belongs to the majors, which is the light blue at the top, has increased fairly dramatically. The independents, the large independents, in fact, have, not, have changed very little. The smaller independents is a dramatic drop from 21% of the rig count down to 12. And surprisingly enough, the privates, which is small companies, poor private companies, and all the private equity investments, the rig count has remained pretty constant. And this is in the context of an overall Permian rig count that's declined quite substantially um, in the last year. The other thing which is always um, the story of the Permian, actually the story of unconventional, is that the quarterly spud to completion cycle for the major tight oil praise normalized to a 10,000 foot lateral has continued to show dramatic improvement across the last year, which in some ways is surprising. Um, and in some ways, it's the story of what has happened uh, with unconventionals in as much as the improvements have continued um, beyond what we thought was originally possible. And again, all types of operators show these efficiency gains. In fact, um, the large Permian operators who have a shorter history are probably showing some of the biggest improvements at this point in time because they're still ramping up to full cycle. And the others continue to improve. The ones who, are having str who struggle and continue to struggle are the privates and the, um, and the private equities. Um, but these gains 
uh, have been gained, have been done uh, very much um, at the expense of sacrificing in some ways long-term potential to the initial IP rate. And we, uh, you know, we see now, as Scott mentioned, that this is starting to show. And improving recovery is becoming less obvious than uh, it was at the beginning with uh, just improving IP rates. And I think that the advent of Exxon and Chevron, who are taking, as Steve explained, a much longer view, is in fact going to improve EUR. It's also going to mean that they can be far more consistent in their programs. They won't be governed by the quarterly cash flow requirement that the independents have to meet. And I think that as we go forward, we're going to see that some of the um, in large independents are going to start moving in the same direction. They're certainly experimenting with new technology. One of the most uh, extraordinary uh, uh, features of the industry is the way that pressure pumping has completely changed as a business. We always used to make money in pressure pumping. It doesn't matter whether it's Halliburton or Schlumberger or anywhere else through the sale of chemicals and products. We never actually made any money through providing pumps at the well site. <laughs> and now we're in a situation where the, um, the operators, given the scale of their, what they do, have taken away from the frac service companies the provision of chemicals and products, sand or propens, and left them with purely the uh, production of uh, the, the right to put equipment on site and to pump. And this has meant that the frac industry, with probably the exception of Halliburton and one or two specialist players in certain basins, means that it's not generating any cash flow. It's certainly not generating enough cash flow to renew its equipment. The whole um, industry has about 300 frac fleets, and projections next year see the need to be somewhere below um, around about 200. At the same time, you have the growing phenomena of the operators requesting electric frac fleets. Electric frac fleets probably cost $10 million or more of capital to put into service than a conventional frac fleet. And uh, most of the benefits, if the operators are as smart as they usually are, will accrue to the operators because the biggest single one will be <laughs> the fact that they don't have to provide diesel to operate the frac fleets anymore. And in fact, I think there's probably a case particularly for the very large operators where they should, um, they should uh, do the, um, purchase the frac equipment for themselves, it would actually be more cheaper. So I'm very much of the view of Scott that the Permian will continue to grow. Uh, it'll grow slower. The actual way it's produced will gradually change over time, which is one of the reasons I think that, you know, uh, I agree with Scott that it's gonna take longer than people think. And I think that, um, the, uh, there has to be a consolidation, obviously, of the smaller players. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen to them, but I suspect in that period of time, the, the four, next four or five years, there'll be a fairly large consolidation of the big players too. So one last thing. Steve talked a lot about flaring. I have an animation, but it takes so much data I can't show it to you, of flaring over the um, the, a heat map of the Permian from 2012 to 2019. So stopping, starting in the top left-hand corner, that's July 2012. You move right, it's July 2017. 
the bottom left is July 2018 and the bottom right is July 2019. I used to carry around a photograph of the Bakken, North Dakota, 684,000 people, uh, a satellite photograph of, of the night light in the Bakken compared to, on the same satellite uh, photograph, the, um, the uh, light signature from Minneapolis, one million people. This is much worse, much, much worse. Uh, and so I totally agree with Steve uh, and Scott that this is a number one problem that the industry has to, uh, uh, with methane, is a number one problem that the industry has to address. Sarah, that's Great, you thank you, Andrew. Steve and Scott, I want to give you a chance to respond to anything Andrew had to say. I know you had a bit of a longer presentation and some data, but it all sort of matched, I think, what you all put forward a bit earlier. One of the things I wanted to delve into is, you know, the Permian has so far been a story of sort of unrelenting progress with some some different chapters to it, right? So certainly a land acquisition phase, lots of growth, lots of small players, uh, to sort of rationalizing portfolios and, and, uh, and sort of shifting investor preferences. I think that's what we talked about last year in our big oil market conference with a, with a perspective that maybe there would be some infrastructure constraints. I just wanted to push each of you a little bit further. There's a recognition that now there's sort of differentiated strategies by size of the company in the basin. What do you think that will mean other than just sort of a shorter, a, a, a slower sort of growth trajectory? What do you think it'll mean for some of the infrastructure development in the region, some of these issues like flaring, some of the economic trends that we've seen? What do you think that that, what the, the goods and the bads that you know people should be thinking about that that might mean for the basin? I'll start off with the uh, the pipelines, the oil and the gas pipelines, uh, just to educate everybody about why the gas is falling behind oil. But as most of y'all know, we had uh, uh, there's about three and a half million barrels a day of oil pipelines that are being added. Uh, between just recently, we've added two lines, but we got up to about 4.2. That was maximum. Uh, we've been flat at 4.2 oil in the Permian Basin up until just recently and we've, we're adding 3.5 million barrels of oil per day. So initially, the, the typical uh, majors all, would always do it, but most independents, it's amazing. we were the only independent besides Oxy that actually signed up for some of the first pipelines that went to the Gulf Coast because we knew we, our goal was to export the crude oil. Now, a lot more independents are going through and committing and making arrangements, but most pipeline companies, they want generally 75% commitment by producers before they commit to build that pipeline. Um, so the oil is sort of solving itself by adding three and a half million on top of four. So we'll have about 7.5 million barrels a day of capacity now. Now on the gas line, when gas is $2, or it actually was negative for several months to last, uh, most independent producers are not signing up for takeaway capacity because it's a, uh, they're getting very little for the revenue. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what's driving these, the slowness of these new pipelines is that there's several more that are on the table, but they cannot get uh, the 75% commitment. So they're only going to a few large independents that are committing to natural gas and the majors. And so they're not quite getting there. So that's why it's taken so much longer to get these natural pipelines. So if we're adding three and a half million barrels of oil per day pipelines, multiply that, multiply that by six, we should be adding 21 BCF a day of natural gas lines. We're only adding six. So this flaring issue is not going away with just these three new pipelines. So, and as Steve said, our, our internal policy, we do not 
start producing a horizontal well until it's connected to to a gap gathering system or a natural gas pipeline. There's still a lot of companies, uh, primarily in the Delaware Basin, that they make that investment um, into that, that well and they start flaring immediately, start producing the oil, they start flaring immediately because there's no natural gas line in place. So we got to figure out a way to where we can bring the uh, private equity companies that are not signing up for minimum volume commitments because what and also the smaller independents and medium-sized independents because if they make that, it's a financial commitment that goes on their balance sheet and if they go through a downturn, the majors might be able to drill through a downturn, but the independent, all yeah. of a sudden they make this commitment, financial commitment, all of a sudden the rig, rig count goes to zero during a price collapse and they're making these payments to the gas pipeline company. So that's the biggest issue we have to solve uh, with the producers and with the pipeline companies and the states probably need to do a better job of putting more pressure on both groups of people in my opinion to uh, to solve that problem. Mm. Steve did you want to add anything? I, you know I, I, I agree with everything you know Scott said that that you know and Andrew's uh, heat map here is very very compelling story. Um, we, we, we have as Scott said signed up for both the uh, takeaway capacity on the oil side and the natural gas side um, we're an integrated company. We participate in markets across the, the globe. So our part of our strategy has always been uh, when we consider a development area, we consider not just how many, how many rigs it'll take, how many wells we can drill, what the production volume is, but uh, how do we access uh, markets where there's gas or oil. Uh, and, and that is why we've had a purposeful strategy of focusing on ultimate recovery resource, but also an integrated strategy of the entire value chain. Um, and and <clears throat> that, that's worked very well for our company. Um, we had a strategy to get to 20 company operated rigs. We did that early this year. Uh, and, and then we had part of that strategy is we were going to take a pause at that level. Mm -hmm. uh, again, assess where we are on the infrastructure, takeaway, market capacity side. We can certainly at any time, the, one of the great things about the asset is it's very flexible in the ability to dial it up or dial it down as market or our portfolio needs uh, as a global company dictate. Um, and, and we love that as attribute of the, of the asset. Um, we, we can certainly add more rigs. We can go faster if we need to or that's the right thing to do for the market. Um, but uh, we, can, we can also run the business very rateably mm -hmm. and, and that getting to a rateable level of production, cash flow, earnings uh, has, has been our goal. And um, in terms of uh, the takeaway capacity on the gas side, uh, we're also in the LNG business on a global basis. Uh, so we look at the gas as potential feedstock for petrochemicals, LNG. Uh, conventional uses of natural gas uh, for feedstock or heating or power generation, whatever it might be. Uh, Andrew made the point that we're requesting our service companies to look at uh, ways to power drilling rigs or pumping units using natural gas. To, it's not huge numbers, but it does create a market for the gas in the basin, and uh, you know every every little bit of market helps. So. Um, that that's our that has been our strategy of how we looked at development in in the Permian Basin and you know, a lot of different as I mentioned there are completely different 
suite of operators. Many of them have different drivers, and many of them have different development strategies. Um, but as uh, as an industry, um, this is a this is an issue that we do have to come to grips with and figure out how to address for the long term. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask, and Andrew, this might be a good place for you to feed into. There's also a discussion, most of you have sort of talked about industry composition and, and sort of strategies uh, with, re with regard to production. Also a lot of concern about the quality of the rock, tier two acreage, production strategy. I was at a interesting uh, a conference, I'm sure you all were there as well, where there was a conversation about where we were relative to our experience in producing, uh, producing these resources. And one very well-known analyst said, well, if you put it in baseball game terms, we're in the seventh inning, right? We've thrown everything at this that we know to throw at it. We're in the seventh inning, we're gonna plateau now. And then somebody who was a technologist uh, on the panel said, no, we haven't gotten out of the batter's box. There's so much more that can be done in this resource base, but, but you have to have the right combination of strategies and technologies. And there's, there's some mix there of sort of technology optimism about what can be done and what is cost affordable and strategically sound to be doing. And so you've got big players in, in the basin now that might be able to do more of that, but you also got some small players that are pretty driven by those initial production rates. So what about this sort of, you know, sort of intersection between the quality of the rock and the technology and what we know to be able to get out of the resource? I think that um, we're actually in a very early stage of technology development. Um, to say that we've exhausted everything means we've exhausted all the trial and error methods we've been using so far. We haven't actually used much technology. I mean, I, there are a bunch of startups in Houston which are really interesting. So for example, there is a technology that we used to use or we started to use offshore uh, to better place wells called drill bit seismic. And this was taking the noise signal from the drill bit and elite, uh, linking it to a vertical seismic profile to give you things. The, you know, the people are so inventive, they said, well, what physical signals do we actually have in a shale well? And they said, oh, we've got the drill bit. You know? So now they're starting to look at how they can use that drill bit signal uh, to better identify where they should be taking the well. Another one which is really interesting is that you know, people have been placing permanent fiber optic in the well. Permanent fiber optic is okay, but now there's a tech company that's coming with a technology that allows you to inject fiber optic and take it out again. And that gives a much better signal than permanent fiber optic, which gets damaged and all the rest of it during the completion process. So I don't think, I really don't think that innovation has had a reasonable shot at it. Now, one of the reasons it's not had a shot is because innovation requires better economics. And this is another advantage of companies that can take the long view, you know, as Steve was saying, they can take the long view, uh, which gives them the time to, to nurture a technology and bring anything. But I think we're in a very early stage. I, I would agree with that. I, I, you, I, I have to tell you, the gentleman nodding his head there is the best scientist I had at Schlumberger's. <laughs> 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 I, I, I would agree with, with you, Andrew. I, I think from our own experience, uh, you know, when we started large, what I will call large-scale operations in the Permian in about 2015-16 time frame from where we are today. We've seen tremendous improvements in the efficiency of the drilling rig fleet. So uh, when I say we're operating 20 company-owned rigs, we're actually getting the efficiency uh, multiplier of what would have been more rigs if, if I go back just five years to 15 or 16. 
um, you know, we, we have modified our basis of design in terms of the casing programs and where we land the wells and the, and the uh, frack stages and how we frack these. We moved to, uh, from thinking we had to use fresh water for all yeah. of our completions, 98% of the water we use today in the Permian is either brackish, which is not fit for human concern, or we recycle the water. Yeah. Uh, we use much more brown sand yeah. now instead of the imported white sand. Uh, so all these things have increased efficiency and driven down the, the cost of development mm -hmm. uh, and has increased the efficiency of developing uh, the asset. And that's, that's, you know, we have a research, part of the company is a research company. Uh, they're experimenting every day with, you know, how do we uh, frack, complete, bring these wells on production? How do we produce them more efficiently to increase the EUR component? Uh, that I talked about, and we're seeing gains there. Uh, we're taking everything we've learned from around the world about high activity or what we call factory type operations and bringing it to bear on the, the Permian Basin. So I, I you know, I, I would agree, I don't know if we're on deck or in the batter's box, but we're certainly in the very early stages of the game and from a technology point of view. That's great, Scott. Yes, uh, one thing I would add is that uh, as an expert reservoir engineer, I like to look at the end results. So I look at type curves. So I've looked at every type curve by operator in the Permian Basin. And so uh, the type curves are not increasing for 80% of the operators. Um, and so I, I see that through IHS work, Wood, Woodback, Reistead, um, S&P Global. And so they have all this data now. And so technology is probably in the early innings. But then you look at the type curves, and we have a slide on our IR deck you can pull up uh, that shows type curves increasing a little bit each year. So this last year, we probably have had the smallest increase uh, from 18 to 19 in our type curve. And so we're getting all this technology, and more can come. But people in general now, you can, you can probably attribute that to people's inventory. So a lot of it are people running out of inventory, and are they downspacing? too much, and is that one of the reasons why the type curve is not getting better through new technology? So at the end result, we got to look, is technology improving the type curve? Mm -hmm. And that's what I'd like to look at, so. Mm -hmm. Great. I'm going to open it up for questions. We have an extremely knowledgeable audience. I'm going to take them in groups of three. We'll go one, two, three. If you can state your name and affiliation, wait uh, for the microphone and uh, question in the form of a question, please. Uh, we'll get in as many as we can. Thank you. Okay, so the question was about the handling of produced water and how that continues to evolve. I, I didn't talk about our, our water. We're probably unique in the fact that we have the probably the largest system in the Permian Basin of moving. Uh, we went to the cities of Midland, Odessa, and, and, and realized there's going to be a shortage of um, fresh water. So the Permian Basin goes through droughts. There was about a two-year drought where aquifers, there's two aquifers under the Permian Basin. They both got very low, and so we were concerned about uh, and started putting numbers on how many wells are going to be fracked each year and said we have to find something besides uh, just brackish water which most people are going to brackish water instead of fresh water but we went to the cities of Midland and Odessa in regard to using affluent water and so we built a system a water system that has tied all of our locations that we'll frack with and then we take that and we try to recycle we're recycling 50 percent now now the issue of disposing is a big issue in the Midland Basin 
Uh, I don't, Steve will have to comment on the Delaware Basin, but in the Midland Basin, we've been injecting into a non-producing formation called the St. Andrews for the last 50 years. We're pressuring that formation up too much, and that's what's causing some drilling issues. So we have to move the injection as we, if we don't recycle, you're always going to have some water uh, that you're going to have to re-inject back into the ground. Uh, and so the, the movement now is to go to deeper wells, to Ellenberger type wells, so more and more people are going to the Ellenberger to uh, inject into, into those zones at much higher rates. So we need to relieve the pressure off the St. Andrews and then inject uh, water into, uh, into deeper zones is what's, what's, what's happening now. Our first priority is to reuse as much of the produced water as we can yeah. that's suitable. Uh, beyond that, uh, we have an ongoing uh, injection program in both Midland and Delaware Basin. So when we move to a new development area, one of the first wells drilled is a disposal well into a isolated formation deep underground. Yeah. And uh, then to, to fill in or level the peaks, we transport the water, any water that we can accommodate. And those two methods to an approved waste disposal facility uh, where they then treat the water and dispose dispose of it. Did you want to add anything, Andrew? Or? No. no. Okay, great. I broke my own rule and uh, didn't take them in groups of three. So let's go back to the gentleman in the back table. And then we'll do Paul and Bob. We're going to take these in three. So we'll come up here and do Paul at the front table. Or else we don't run out of time. Oh, well, that's Bob. Let's look at Bob. Go ahead. I'll take them. I'll take the microphone. Bob Feinberg, ex lumberjay now, Columbia University and Boston University. Tide oil against oil recovery seems to be catching on. Uh, Eagle Ford, maybe slowly. Uh, any prospect for that, for using field gas, tight oil EOR in the permit? Okay, great. And then right here for Paul. Hi, it's uh, Paul Sankey at you, you all talk about consolidation in the next several years. Can you give us a roadmap for how that plays out, um, both in the, in the service side but also obviously? <laughs> Okay, so we've got a crude quality a methodology and then an industry consolidation question. Any? Really yeah. <laughs> you want to, what do y'all want to start first? Or? Uh, well, Andrew, start. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know enough to comment on uh, the use of EOR in the Permian. The, what I have heard is not encouraging, Bob. And I hear that in the Eagleford there are reservoirs that have a decent seal that allows you to produce, to do some uh, proper EOR injection, but people tell me that in the Permian there are not that number of seals, but again, I'm not an expert and I would leave it to Scott or Steve to say so. The operator consolidation, um, you know, this is an unpleasant thing to say, but prices are too high for people to want to consolidate at this point in time. And I think they're going to have to get quite a lot lower, and there's going to have to be quite a shakeout, particularly of the private equity and small players, before you get 
some sensible consolidations are starting to appear. In the service industry, you know, poverty is an awful bedfellow. Uh, and I think that in the frack industry, you will see consolidation because it's absolutely necessary. And one of the only ways that you're going to be able to compete in the future with the larger players is if you can bring some um, technology, but above all, you can bring some scale. When they're running, you know, you're running 20 rigs, you've got a lot of non-operated ventures which are running, I don't know how many other rigs. Exxon's currently at 55 rigs. To answer their tenders, you have to be a big company. Mm -hmm. So I think in, certainly in frac, and maybe even in drilling, there's going to be further consolidation driven by scale and economics. Steve Scott. You want to go? Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> uh, on, the, on the crude quality question, we actually have a slide that addresses that. Uh, most of the, uh, talking to a lot of the buyers of the crude, the, the Midland Basin average is between 40 and 45, so our average gravity is 42. Uh, the Delaware is between 45 and 50, and so there's a discount in Delaware between 50 cents and $1.50. The Delaware is going to grow with time, so they, they, they coin a new term, WTL now, West Texas Light, and that's mostly Delaware, and it's going to grow faster than the Midland bar Barrel. And so uh, the, the people that we're selling to in Asia and Europe, we're exporting 90% of our crude. Uh, they, they like the Midland and gravity, lower gravity barrels better than they do the Delaware is what we're being told. In regard to... Um, the question on EOR, uh, I've been told I can't identify. There's one major that's maybe looking at an EOR project, and Pioneer is seriously uh, in regard to looking at a huff and puff project inside the Midland Basin, which is similar to what EOG is doing. So we estimate about 6 to 8% oil recovery, and we hope to double that uh, if successful with an EOR project, huff and puff, injecting wet gas. On consolidation, uh, I get asked that all the time, but I guess what's interesting, Paul, is that the, uh, the market seems to like the PDC deal, uh, which uh, two small players got together in the Wattenberg recently, but there, there was no premium paid. And so uh, I told um, investors that they need to push it because most CEOs don't want to sell out at no premium. And so uh, hopefully... Uh, the uh, smaller players will start combining in the Permian if they can figure it. They're going to have to have pressure from the long investors to, to merge together and get scale. Um, the majors, uh, I think we saw an example of what happened with uh, the uh, Oxy transaction, but Oxy established a couple acreage values that's probably uh, keeping the disconnect. I've seen several write-ups by the sales side. There's a disconnect between independents, what they want to sell at, and as to what the majors want to buy at. And Oxy uh, sort of established two points. Uh, if, if you look at the sell side and uh, a company called RSEC, the uh, average, if you back out the values uh, for international, Gulf of Mexico and Colorado, that Oxy is paying somewhere between 40 to 55,000 per acre. And then you look at the deal with Equipatrol, uh, which was at 31,000 per acre. And a lot of that is probably not what I call tier one acreage in the Midland Basin. So you established um, a couple of high points. Uh, and there's another private company that's been up for sale for about 10 months and they haven't sold um, in the Midland Basin. They probably have the largest private position in the Permian Basin and they haven't sold. So the, it just shows us a disconnect between buyers and sellers. So 
Consolidation will eventually happen as people um, roll up their inventory, in my opinion, so. Steve? Uh, yeah, just uh, briefly on EOR, that's one of the areas that we are doing a lot of research and investigation on. Um, you know, it's, it's early days for that. On the consolidation side, um, maybe we were a company that was in that discussion about Anadarko for a short, <laughs> short period, but you weren't of, time, paying those short period of time, yeah. but we, we exited yeah, yeah. That, that transaction. Yeah. Uh, you know, our, our, I mean, and, and Paul uh, covers us, so he, he's well aware of our, our view on consolidation. We're always in the market to improve our portfolio and look to add accretive assets to the portfolio, be that a uh, NOJV like a company like Scott's company where we combine acreage and uh, you know it benefits both companies, whether it be acquiring acreage that cores up a position and allows us to do more uh, deve a bigger development area with longer laterals, or whether that be uh, a region or a company. Uh, company size assets, very difficult to do. And, uh, you know, we, we can look at those very opportunistically and we have to see a way that we can add value and recoup not only the purchase price, but it's accretive to the portfolio. Consolidation has been a hallmark of our industry for as long as I've been in it. Yeah. So I, I don't have any expectations that's going to cease, uh, but it has to be that right combination of you know, timing, assets, and value. Uh, that, that's the way we look at it. That's great. We might have time for one or two more questions, Sorry, if there are a couple. Oh, does Steve, do you have something uh, to say on the lightness I, I thought question? Andrew covered, yeah, I don't covered it. Do you agree yeah. with me? I don't have any yeah. difference in that. It's, yeah. it's uh, you know, 40 to 45 to, you know, in some areas, very high, high 40, so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, we'll do Jim and then this gentleman here, and I think that's probably all we'll be able to do. Uh, Jim Slutes with the National Petroleum Council, but I'm, I'm asking this question from my, um, I'm a former state regulator of the oil and gas industry. And in the 1960s, the Texas, there was a great deal of natural gas flaring and the Texas Railroad Commission ba basically, you know, set a date certain to stop flaring and it actually spurred a lot of the interstate pipeline system. So why is it, I, I think it would be helpful to understand why is it not so simple? For this, for the railroad commission, just to say, stop. Good question. Okay, we'll do the gentleman right up here. Yeah, hi. My name is Willem Bloom, Bloom Consultants. Um, my question is really about the uh, the amount of flaring. Is that not a huge opportunity missed? This is a valuable gas. Uh, we have LNG, small scale LNG technologies. Where do you see this going? One more time. Anybody want to take a? Yeah, the, uh, I could make a general statement that you know um, I can't remember when it started, but it was certainly in the late 80s or early 90s. There was a United Nations uh, campaign on reducing flaring worldwide, and since then, actually, flaring has not changed one iota. It's just moved from place to place, mm -hmm. and it's very linked to acceleration of new production. You know, uh, because as Steve and Scott explained, you know, you can't just produce um, without taking care of the gas, but some people can't afford to wait to take care of the gas before they have to produce. So, I mean, a, a regulator who would put a limit on flaring every month in the Permian, which is what's been talked about to some extent, would have a very dramatic effect on the economics of the independence almost immediately. Mm -hmm. That's probably true. 
Steve, Scott? Uh, you know, the, the, I think Scott, uh, Scott alluded to it earlier that the challenge is, depending on where you are the, on the economic spectrum of, uh, as an operator, um, is, is how many tools you can afford to deploy to deal with the movement of, of oil or gas. Um, and, and how broadly you participate in the market is yeah. also another determinant. You mentioned LNG. A lot of these molecules will find their way through some of the liquefaction facilities being built, you know, around the country, um, you know, in Mexico or where, wherever it may be. Um, but, uh, you know, U.S. natural gas prices are, are pretty low right now. Uh, and there's, you know, demand is not growing at the same rate as, as production is growing on the natural gas side. Right. So um, if, if, you know, depending on where you are in that economic spectrum, uh, you know, uh, uh, Scott, Scott said it very well, you know, you just simply can't afford to buy long-term transmission capacity, pay that monthly or annual fee uh, if, if you're not getting a return on it from the market. And again, I, I, go, I go back to from our standpoint, that's one of the ways we look at and we operate the asset and, and you know, is part of the, the calculus, if you will, of our development strategy is, you know, what are we going to produce? What is the gas oil ratio? How are we going to move the oil molecules? How are we going to move the gas molecules? What are we going to do with them? Because, uh, as I said, we, we can't bring production on that, that flaring is, is part of that equation on the long term. Mm -hmm. Certainly from safety, operational, or maintenance facilities, we have to use that. Uh, to depressurize facilities, but it is not, uh, we do not uh, consider routine a viable method of moving natural gas. Scott? Yeah, the only other thing, there's, uh, with the Royal Commission in Texas, there's an interesting case that just came out in the last 30 days. Uh, it was Exco, a small operator, versus Williams, and the commission uh, voted two to one to allow Exco to flare. Yeah. And so uh, the commission is basically stating that they do not want to interfere between uh, they want the producer and the pipelines to solve the issues themselves and that's their that's their current state of mind we're taking a little bit different role we're going to um, create more slides uh, publicly on our ir deck to talk about a lot of our practices uh, such as not tying in wells until they're connected uh, and so uh, we install no chevron does it too vapor recovery units on every new well uh, and so we're, we're going to be more public about the slides, and that'll help pressure other companies to do so. Yeah. That's great. Well, I want to thank all three of you for getting us kicked off on the right foot this morning and sharing your views about where the Permian's been, where we are now, and where we're going. Uh, before I introduce the next panel, please join me in thanking Steve, Scott, and Andrew for being with us today. Thank you. Good job. Yeah. Thank you. All right, we have a very aggressive agenda this morning. We are not going to take a break, but I would like to invite Sarah Emerson and Rusty. Okay, good morning. Uh, I've been told we need to keep moving, so we're going to start, uh, even as those folks mill about outside. Uh, hopefully they'll come running back in. Uh, my name is Sarah Emerson. Uh, for the last 30 years, I've run an energy research and forecasting firm. Uh, and recently I was made a senior associate of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm very honored to be here uh, wearing both hats. So I get to be uh, the uh, moderator for this panel, um, which is uh, kind of an interesting follow-on to the previous panel. 
Uh, I'm joined by two uh, true experts uh, on my left, uh, Lise Rodanov, I hope I said that right. It was close and I appreciate that you tried. Okay. <laughs> um, who has spent her career with Schlumberger and um, I will not try to tell you everything she's done, but it's been a, it's a very impressive career. I think actually hearing from an oil field services company today is really, really important uh, because they seem to be right in the center or the heart of the issues. Um, so uh, I'm going to move right on to Rusty. Rusty Brazil is also here with us. Uh, he also has a very impressive um, bio that you can read for yourself. Um, he's, he's, uh, I think he's known as one of the most eminent and uh, uh, comprehensive experts on shale. Uh, his path and mine have crossed many times over the last five or six years. And I always think of Rusty as the person who, has, who is bearing witness to this tremendous industrial development. Um, so thank you, Rusty, for being here as well. Um, I get to start, uh, and I just have a couple comments to make. Um, whoops, there we go. Um, the thing that strikes me about uh, the shale boom, the shale development, um, is uh, just the irony of its timing, uh, because this is also a period in which uh, many people in energy and in policymaking are looking at ways to have more sustainable energy use. And as that, people refer to the energy transition as sort of gaining some momentum in, in different parts of the economy and in the world. Uh, we have this tremendous industrial uh, event taking place. And I would argue that shale is akin to the transcontinental railroad in terms of its impact, its short-term impact on the economy. Uh, it's even like the uh, national highway system or, or even the Ford Motor Company's uh, you know, assembly line manufacturing. It's a big, big event um, hitting at a very interesting and notable time um, in our history um, as we face uh, continued interest and concern over sustainability. So I think it's important to have these events to talk about, as we see here, its potential and its outlook, um, given this sort of strange confluence of these two trends in our economy and in the global economy. Um, I'm going to just make a comment before we pass it over to Lise and Rusty. Um, and let's see if I got this right. Yep. Don't go another one. Okay. Um, this is a, a lot of what Andrew Gould was talking about. Um, and it's just, just an, another way of thinking about it. And that's really just the financial um, uh, impacts of the last few years. And I think um, Scott Sheffield mentioned this. And I, I forget exactly how he put it much more elegantly. Um, but. Uh, this is a situation where investor confidence and investor scrutiny has become a bigger deal and it has changed the way in which shale companies have integrated or combined or operated. Uh, when we look at the top 30 producers in, uh, in this is shale, this is total shale, um, not just Permian. Um, when you look at the amount of uh, money that's spent just to maintain uh, current production, it's really phenomenal. And what I want to point out here is you continue to generate that cash in order to maintain production, let alone grow it. And the two charts at the bottom 
One is uh, a year ago, cash flow to CapEx ratio in the first half of 2018. And these, again, the, the 30 largest producers. Um, and what you see there is that about half of them are above the, the, the one line. This is a ratio. So if you're above the line, you are actually spending less than you're bringing in as revenues. If you're below the line, it's the opposite. Um, and the same thing with the blue on the left-hand side, only this is for the first half of 2019. So it's a comparison, really, of last year and this year in, in some respects. And you know, when people first look at these charts, they go, wow, look at all those companies that are below the line. But I think what's more important here is looking at how, in the blue chart, how much the companies that are below the line have moved up to that 80% or 80 ratio. Um, compared to the purple line where a year ago they were, more, they were closer to the 50% ratio. And I think this is a really good indication of how things have already begun to change. And if we went back previous years, you'd see more change as well. So the, the investor's message is definitely being heard, and I think the speakers this morning uh, validated that. Um, the question now is really where do we go from here, because the resource is there and we're building out the infrastructure. But we still have this issue with, with cash flow and CapEx. And I think one of the most interesting things from this morning was um, uh, Steve's comment about Chevron uh, looking at it. This is a rateable industry for the long haul. And I think that's a, a very interesting insight. So I'm going to stop there. Um, these are my concerns about shale. And I'm going to turn this over to Lise, who will tell us in much more detail uh, what's happening. Thank you. So thank you for the introduction and for uh, the chance to be here. I appreciate it. I um, um, am excited for the opportunity to share the stage with Rusty as well. Um, so I'm not going to talk about the production outlook or the macro because Rusty's going to cover that far better than I would. But what I was going to talk about was um, production and kind of the influ influencers around that, how it's evolved, and then um, the drivers or things that we're thinking about in terms of um, those next gains and from a service company perspective. So if I start, um, oh, it's a very sensitive button. So if I start with production, we look at the graph on the left. So the, the, the graph on the left there, the um, dashed line is as a proxy for activity is well completions for the whole of the US. The solid dark line on the top is US production. And then the green line on the bottom, solid line, is Permian production. So if you look 2015-2016, um, you see this dramatic reduction in activity, as indicated by the dashed line. And the US production turns over, goes down in line with that. There's a correlation. Um, it's masked a little bit. It doesn't go down as much as you might expect because of the Permian. So if you look at the, the Permian line, I just showed the activity line for U.S., but if you looked at completions um, in Permian, you'd see the same dramatic decline. However, production continued to rise. So the drivers for that were these you know, tremendous improvements in well productivity and capital efficiency over that um, time frame. So if you look at the graph on the right, now let's talk about productivity. Um, on this graph, the three lines, um, the top line there, the green is 30-day IP as kind of a, a proxy, if you will, for productivity. You've got the gray line, which is lateral length. And then the blue line, the one on the bottom, is frac fluid volume normalized for footage as, um, uh, as, as another indicator. So 
if again, looking back kind of through 2015, 2016, these three lines are moving in sync. So both lateral length and completion size were driving productivity gains. But then when you get sometime kind of early 2017, frac fluid volumes, completion size plateaus and stabilizes a bit, and then the productivity gains since then are largely driven by increasing lateral length. Um, going forward, I would say, you know, I would expect lateral length to continue to go up. Um, if you, as a reference right now, the average lateral length in the Permian is say around 8,500. If you look at some of the other basins um, in the U.S., it's north of 10,000. So still room to, to go up there. What I'm going to do now is um, look kind of, um, and it was referenced a little bit in the first panel, but this, these evolution of um, the playbook and the things we think about as we're trying to, what's influencing what the activity looks like and how we can drive further progress. So the way I'm gonna graphically represent this as I walk through these different buckets, I've got three buckets and I'm gonna talk about kind of the drivers, what's going on with activity, and then as you look at optimization, what are the, the kind of the main levers that are being pulled in optimization. On the graph you've got uh, on the x-axis WTI and on the y-axis is uh, Permian rig count. So if uh, the, the three buckets that we look at, we, the first one, let's say 2013 to 2016, the second one I'm going to look at 17 and 18, and then the last one, 2019 and onward. Um, I'm going to treat them as three separate buckets, but y you know, even hearing in the first panel, there's clearly in each bucket, there's a transition as well as there are outliers in terms of behavior in each of those buckets. For, but like I said, for the simplicity of the discussion, let's treat them as, as three separate uh, kind of time slices. So if you look at 2013 to 2016, the drivers here are growth. There's um, a lot of hold by production activity um, with the influx of, of private money the um, you know, search for high IPs to monetize the asset, really growth is the driver. And then if you look at the correlation between activity and price, as evidenced by the, the graph here, each dot represents a week of rig count over that time frame. It's highly correlated, you know, plus or minus 50% over the price range of WTI, uh, you know, 120 rigs or more, plus or minus. In, in terms of optimization, um, I would say, again, there are outliers and exceptions, but in general, optimization wasn't the driver. It was about growth in this, in this kind of time bucket. If we move to the next one, so 2017, 2018, um, the driver here um, becomes cost and efficiency. So commodity price changes, cost and efficiency becomes the driver. Going back to the graph, so these orange dots, same thing, one um, dot for every week. And there's a couple of things to point out. So across a really wide range of WTI, say 40, 45 to 75, close to 80, the rig count's only moving plus or minus 10%, you know, 50 rigs, in, less than 50 rigs in the Permian. You see the same phenomenon at the US, uh, overall US level. Another thing that you notice is that you know, collectively, the orange dots are sitting higher than the blue dots. So, um, you know, this is indicative of a couple things, is that um, at the same price, you can do a lot more, a lot more activity, and again, the previous panel talked about that, uh, because of the, the transformational gains, really, in efficiency. Um, whereas in the first bucket or time slice, a lot of the activity would have been parent well activity. You start to see children come into the, the mix here. There's a bunch of service cost compression in this, uh, in this bucket. And like I said, kind of um, 
huge, huge gains in efficiency, on both the drilling and the completion side, which I talked about a little bit on the previous slide. In terms of optimization, again, it was referenced in the first panel, but the methodology or the tactic was really kind of trial and error. What is my neighbor doing that worked well for him or her? Um, this search for economies of scale, bigger, faster, longer. Um, and um, not, not so much of a scientific approach, but you know, we tried this one, um, you know, this spacing, let's take it down a little bit, let's take it down a little bit, and then when production behaves in a way that you don't want, then you stop. So really trial and error was kind of the methodology. So if we move to the, the third um, bucket of time, and, and like I said at the, at the beginning, you know, I have 2019 onward. Is 2019 part of the previous time slice? Is it the transition? Uh, you know, time will tell. But um, the driver is definitely, as several have said this morning, cash and returns is the focus. And if you go back to the graph, these green dots, um, again, we notice a couple of things. So across, again, a pretty wide um, range of WTI, you get 45 to 75, it's, there's an even tighter compression of the green dots um, in terms of vertical spacing. And then you also see that the green dots start to overlay the orange dots. So I think this could be indicative of a few things. One is the capital discipline so that, you know, yes, I, I could do more with at this commodity price than previously, but I'm not going to. And then I think the other is that, um, you know, it was interesting, the question on the first panel around efficiency gains is that um, the, the operational efficiency gains, not leveraging technology or digital or things like that, the, the step change or many of those gains have already been possibly um, the bulk of those realized. So to get that next step change in efficiency, something different does have to, uh, have to come to bear to be able to drive that. The, um, in terms of also related to activity, you know, so more children, uh, child wells in this place. And then when I think about planning, so you know, you've got now this in, Previous cycles, if, as we've been through many cycles throughout our careers, you know, you would look at activity and production and um, make your resource plans. But when this is the case where across, you know, $30, $40 activity isn't going to change, recount isn't going to change, you need to be thinking about different things. So we've really started to look at spend in a very detailed way as um, a much more important lever for driving what we're going to, to, to resource. And then not just looking at CapEx. So CapEx, um, you know, down in 2019, it should be, it'll be down some in 20, 2020. But OPEX as a share is increasingly important and OPEX is going up. So over that same two year period, you know, OPEX is gonna be up 40, uh, 45% depending on the source you look at. Um, so the overall system cost and the less focused, you know, the shift from the previous bucket of looking at the widget cost and instead looking at system cost and how can we drive total system performance and drive cost out, I think um, is definitely will be a characteristic of this, uh, this third, uh, third time slice. Although there, there will have to be um, changes to the commercial frameworks that exist today to invite the space to have that discussion. Um, in terms of optimization, it's, so now it's, it's not, you know, kind of bigger, bigger, longer, faster. It's gonna, it needs to be better. And uh, it's this reintroducing the discussion of technology. But also, again, with few exceptions, the reservoir hasn't been um, 
and the, the, the best field development plan, EUR, hasn't been, for, for many operators, the, uh, the primary driver. So how do you bring that back in the discussion in a way, like I said, where total system cost doesn't go up? Um, the, the trial and error method is, is too costly to do that. Digital obviously plays a role, analytics, automation, et cetera, so that you can um, minimize that learning to get to that sweet spot between cash, cost, and, and production. So um, they're not, uh, you know, this, uh, this last kind of bucket of time or this next phase, there's not without challenges. I think that um, some of them have been talked about a little bit, and maybe we can explore them in the Q&A in detail, but I think workforce is gonna be one of the big ones um, in terms of the, the number of people that's required as well as uh, the competencies required from people. Um, workforce could be a limiting factor in, uh, in further growth in the Permian. I think that the, the lenses, again, that were touched on a little bit previously, but the lens of impact on the community and the sustainability lens uh, playing a bigger role in decision-making um, is, is another uh, challenge or, or opportunity. And then um, third, uh, I, I would say, again, the commercial frameworks. If you go, um, you know, outside of unconventional and you look other places, the commercial frameworks are for longer term um, inviting a discussion to address some of these workforce sustainability, um, how do we drive total system cost out challenges, you know, EFRAC came up this morning, but the commercial frameworks that don't, that we have today in unconventional because they were very focused on driving widget cost out, don't invite this, allow the space for that discussion. So those I think are from my perspective, the, the big challenges that would have to be addressed um, to tackle this last phase. Um, so I guess just to summarize, uh, hand it over to, to Rusty. Um, we are planning on um, overall growth, and I'll, I'll let uh, Rusty talk about that, but in general, uh, continued growth in the Permian, but slower. Um, that Permian as an investment relative to other places to put uh, capital, it does still remain uh, a good, uh, uh, an attractive choice, and then um, the next big gains, I will agree with the sentiment from the first panel, I do think we're in early stages of, of uh, potential gains to, to uh, improvement, and I, I think technology and improvement, uh, technology innovation uh, plays the role in, in getting to that next step. So, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Well, thanks again, uh, CSIS, for asking me to speak. Uh, I, I think Sarah all, actually only asks me to show up at these things so she can find out what song title I use uh, to, uh, to start these things off. This time it was easy. It was easy. It was very clearly break on through to the other side. That's the Doors, 1967. It was a very good year for those of you who were alive in 1967. So whether you're talking about crude or NGLs or natural gas or whatever, uh, Permian production's been bottled up for the last couple of years. Uh, now we've got pipelines that are coming on that are gonna change that, that is, uh, that is very good news. It's a real success story about how the market has worked the way the market is supposed to work. In other words, we had transportation constraints because production went up. 
Uh, that incentivized, because of price differentials, people to build pipelines, people announced those pipelines to be built once they got shippers <coughs> to sign on, and now those pipelines are in the process of coming online. Now, you know, not quite as soon as some producers like Scott might have liked them to come online. Maybe it didn't happen as fast as it should, but it did happen. So it worked the way it was supposed to, and that is a good thing. Um, what are we talking about here in terms of why this has happened? This is production, so this is, there's, there's no forecast in what we're showing here except maybe the last couple of months uh, that are extended out. But this is uh, Permian crude oil production uh, increasing from 2 million barrels a day up to nearly 4.5 million barrels a day uh, today, and that was 2, and a half, uh, 2 million barrels a day in 2016. So just up like crazy, uh, natural gas production up uh, at the same order of magnitude, uh, going from uh, uh, up to about uh, 10 BCF a day, and natural gas liquids, propane, butane, etc., increasing from about 700,000 barrels a day in uh, uh, in 2016 up to 1.6 uh, BCF today. Now notice when you look at those three slides there, or three graphs there, they look pretty darn similar. And you say, well, why should they look pretty darn similar? Well, there's a really good reason for that. Just like what Scott was saying, uh, just like what Steve was saying, all of these hydrocarbons are coming out of the same hole in the ground. They're all coming out of the same wells. So it shouldn't be surprising that the volumes all look the same, but when these products get out of the well, then they're going to different markets, they're priced in different ways, there are different logistics involved, and so that's where the Permian really gets interesting, at least to me, or chaotic, depending on what role you happen to be in, as to once these production numbers actually come to fruition, how does it all play out? Well, one thing we've been talking about so far is, uh, is it plays out differently in terms of pricing. And so we can look at how that has played out, for example, for crude oil over the course of the past couple of years. This is WTI at Cushing, uh, getting up to the mid-70s uh, uh, last year, then dropping back down to the 40s in December, and then basically cycling around the mid-50s uh, ever since. This is the price at Midland. Uh, so. Obviously, if you look there, there's a wide differential between the price at uh, Cushing and the price at Midland last year. Uh, however, this year, uh, that differential has been relatively narrow, only about a buck 40, or Midland's about a, been <clears throat> about a buck 40 less than Cushing over the course uh, of the last nine months or so. And that's because of a few pipeline projects that have come online and pipeline or pro production growth slowing down somewhat. Uh, the, uh, I guess the important thing to note about this is that if you draw a straight line through that Midland price over the last two years, it's 57 bucks. It's pretty close to 57 bucks for that entire time frame. <coughs> so all of the increase that we have seen in terms of production that we saw on that previous slide has effectively happened at 57 bucks, <laughs> and 57 bucks isn't any higher or lower this year in the Midland than it was last year. That means production can grow pretty darn successfully at 57 bucks because the economics are there. Of course, the world is different for natural gas. Uh, this is a natural gas price at Henry Hub. This is natural gas price at Waha, which is the primary trading hub for natural gas in the Permian. 
Uh, as of last year, we were about a buck or so, about a buck 20 under Henry through uh, March of this year, and then all of a sudden the bottom fell out. Uh, natural gas prices in the Permian went down to average uh, 30 cents and MMBTU, that's $2.15 under the Henry Hub, uh, as was mentioned on the previous panel, sometimes getting down into uh, negative prices. And in any other basin in the United States, that would be an absolute catastrophe. But as you saw, production in the, in the Permian has continued to increase. So there's two ways that producers have been managing their way through this problem. Thing number, way number one is that there's a lot of producers that did sign on for natural gas pipeline capacity out of the Permian, therefore they're not selling their gas at those low prices. They're selling it at the Houston Ship Channel or Agua Dulce, or they're selling it someplace besides uh, in the Permian and they're not suffering through those prices. Uh, the, other all, the other thing that's going on is that, as was alluded to in the previous panel, natural gas in the big scheme of life is just not a big number for the economics for most Permian producers. Let's look at the way those economics shake out. This is a break-even price on a typical Delaware well in the Permian, uh, and if crude oil prices are at $65, to break even on that well, and the guys that were up here before would not really, you know, they're, they're not all excited about breaking even on wells, right? But if they, if, if they can break even on a well, if they sell their gas in the Permian <laughs> at a negative $8 an MMBTU. Why did prices go negative? Because it made economic sense for prices to go negative because those producers that do sign up for starting production on their wells before they have a natural gas connection. It makes sense to flare them because their economics say they could make money or they can break even, even if they're a negative uh, eight bucks. If prices are at 55 bucks, about where the forward curve is right now, uh, we can make money at negative $4. Even if prices are down at $45, these guys can make money at a negative $2 price. Now again, nobody wants to get a negative $2 price for their gas, but it certainly does mean that economically flaring is not such a bad idea. Bad idea for the, for, for the environment for sure, but not necessarily economically. So how much flaring has really been going on? You can get any consultant in this business to give you a different number on this. Fortunately, the Railroad Commission is doing a pretty good job lately about tabulating all the numbers up based on the figures that they have, and I tend to trust what the Railroad Commission has because I'm from Texas. <laughs> and here's, here's the way it shakes out. Uh, this is production from 2016 uh, up to now each year, so you can see just exactly what the increase in production was last year. This year we've slowed down. We've slowed down because of transportation capacity constraints, but we're still a little above 10 uh, uh, to BCF of total production out of the Permian. Flaring is somewhere between 450,000, 500,000 uh, uh, a day or about 0.4 uh, up to maybe 0.5 BCF. Uh-oh, I hit the wrong button. Person back there, I have no idea what button. I... Can you not fix this back there? Guess not. 
They told me not to push that button. <laughs> I won't do it again, I promise. Um, let's see. Where were we? Now, I'm not sure where we are. Oh, we're here. <clears throat> yeah, so the main thing is, uh, remember, a lot of these producers do have pipeline capacity out of the Permian, therefore they're getting pretty good prices for their, for their product, even on natural gas. So let's call it a half a B that, uh, that is uh, being flared. There's another uh, 4.4.5 Bs or so that is being curtailed. This is mostly gas that's associated uh, with, that's not associated with crude oil production. But all of that production is going out of the basin one way or the other, going north, south, east, or west. And we can actually look at that. We can look at it by corridor uh, for each of the pipelines that are moving gas out of the basin. So basically, up until recently, there have been four ways of, to, to get out of the Permian. Way number one, let's go west. Let's, let's go to California. Let's go to the west coast, Trans-Canada uh, and, um, uh, and El Paso. Uh, where's my, where'd my numbers go? Uh, about three BCF uh, or so going out that direction. One point, and by the way, essentially maxed out. So uh, although theoretically there's a little bit more volume that can move that way, there's a lot less lo uh, volume uh, that's needed in the on the West Coast these days, so effectively that corridor has been maxed out. NGPL and Northern Natural, uh, two other pipelines going north, about 1.9 BCF a day capacity there, maxed out. 3.7 uh, BCF a day on interstate pipelines going toward Dallas, going toward the Houston Ship Channel, uh, that has been maxed out. And then there is 3.1 BCF a day of capacity available on pipelines going down to Mexico. Unfortunately, uh, the vast majority of that pipeline capacity doesn't connect to anything on the other side of the border. The pipelines either didn't get built or the demand on the other side of the border is not there yet and therefore there's only about a half a BCF moving that direction. If you add all those numbers up, if you add all those numbers up, uh, it's about 9.1 of capacity out uh, relative to about 10 BCF a day of production uh, that needs to get out. There's about one BCF of production uh, or demand on any one given day inside the basin. So generally speaking, uh, it's a fairly well balanced market with capacity, at least right now, pretty well equal to production. That's not good for pricing, by the way. That still means prices are under a lot of pressure. However, as we sit here today, that market is changing a lot. Gulf Coast Express, one of those pipelines, the Kinder, DCP, Targa, Altus pipelines, been in the work for about three years or so. Uh, it adds another two BCF a day of capacity to the marketplace, and that is coming online right now, and we can already see it in the pricing. So this is what prices have looked like <clears throat> since the 1st of January up to now. The red lines there mean that the price is below or was below zero during those periods of time. There was a period of time when the price settled out about six bucks below zero. There were some trades done uh, as wide as nine dollars below zero. But over the course of the past two or three weeks, you can see there that there were, were prices that are up to about a buck. And that is because that new pipeline is coming online. And as that new pipeline comes online, the constraints out of the basin 
basically start to go away. The price, by the way, uh, as of yesterday, was $1.68. So uh, as it is right now, uh, and Scott, you can check this out, producers are partying in the streets of Midland uh, right now. I'm, I'm certain it must be true, or at least it'll happen on Friday night. That's the forward curve. So what the market is telling us in terms of the forward curve is that uh, we're expecting prices to be somewhere around two bucks or so as we go into this winter, and then the price drops off. Well, why would the price drop off again? That's because that new pipeline's gonna fill up. Production, at least in terms of what the market believes and what we believe in our forecast that we'll look at in a few minutes, is that over the next six or nine months or so, the, the uh, production is going to continue to increase, it's gonna fill up again, and prices are going to be back down into the $1 range or so. It's gonna stay that way for a while, and then we're gonna get another new pipeline built, and then prices are gonna go back up, and prices are gonna then, at least if you believe these curves, stay that way for a while. Well, I don't know. I don't think uh, I'd be so sure about that. Here's our production forecast. Uh, oops, that's crude oil. So again, we're about 4.3, 4.4 uh, right now. It says that uh, our forecast says we're gonna get up by 20, into 2024, around, uh, around seven BCF, uh, up to about a little over eight BCF in our high case. So we actually do three cases every time we go through this exercise because we never know what crude oil prices are gonna be. So on a high crude oil price, we're up to eight. Uh, and a low crude oil price, uh, we're down about six and seven is about in the middle. So, uh, you know, going back to, Scott, what you said uh, about what's going to happen, yes, I think things are slow, going to slow down to six or 700,000 barrels a day on an annualized basis if prices stay in that mid-50s range. Prices go back up to 65 bucks, and your original forecast, I think, looks pretty good. So, all depends on how, how it shakes out. Again. This is uh, what looks like, what the gas situation will look like. And the title of this thing says dry gas. It's a little bit of a misnomer. When you look there at that uh, uh, blue hatched area, that is total gas production showing getting up to about 25 BCF. But that total gas production doesn't include the molecules that are extracted out of gas to produce natural gas liquids. And so if you look at the green area and those three lines around the green area, that is our uh, production of natural gas uh, forecast after NGLs are extracted, getting from about 10 BCF a day up to about 18 and a half in our base case and 22 uh, BCF in our high case. And, and by the way, the most important variable in that low case, high case scenario is not the price of gas. Price of natural gas has almost nothing to do with the difference in those lines. It's all about the price of crude oil that makes the difference in those lines. Natural gas liquids, same sort of thing. Uh, 1.5 million barrels a day uh, up to 2.4 million barrels a day in the, uh, in the base case, 2.8 million barrels a day in the high case. That means we need a lot more pipelines and Good old midstream companies are making that happen. So the way we tabulate up the numbers, there's about 4.2 uh, million barrels a day of new pipeline capacity coming online. Uh, Cactus 2, which is cranking up as we speak, is bringing on right now 585,000 barrels a day. 
Uh, and then we'll have P66 Enbridge, Gray Oak, Energy Transfers, uh, Permian Express 4 uh, coming on, and then uh, uh, Epic uh, has their NGL pipeline that they repurposed for crude oil uh, that they'll be bringing on in terms of crude oil as we speak. There's actually flow in that line right now, uh, and then ultimately they'll flip it back over into NGLs and bring their crude oil system on that will increase the capacity on that line too. Two other big pipes coming uh, in 2021, uh, the uh, Plains, Exxon, Lotus, MPLX, Wink to, uh, uh, Wink to uh, Webster uh, pipeline, uh, 1 million barrels a day up to 1.5 million barrels a day, and the Enterprise Midland to Echo 2, uh, another million barrels a day. So it is a bunch of capacity coming on. Uh, a lot of that is going to get built. If you do the math in the back of your head, you'll come up with the fact that we're going to have a lot of pipelines and maybe not enough crew to fill them. Uh, and to keep you from doing all that math, we'll just show you the, the numbers right here. So this is what we call our basic stack analysis of the next few years out of the Permian. So the gray area is all the pipeline capacity that exists now. Uh, the three pipes uh, that you see, um, uh, uh, the pipes above that are the pipelines that have been announced. There's some conversation about some of those pipelines being consolidated. That's historical production. This is our uh, mid case, uh, base case, and our high case forecast, which says if everything gets built, somebody's going to get left held in the back. Somebody is going to end up with pipeline capacity that's not getting used. It will not be the new pipelines. The new pipelines have shippers that have signed on, and that gas, that in this case crude oil, is going to flow. Uh, it is the pipelines that have contracts that are rolling off, pipelines that have been there for a while that are going to have something to worry about. Could the same thing happen to gas? Well, yes, it could. Uh, this is Kinder's GCX pipeline. It's coming on now uh, to BCF. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, all these pipelines uh, for natural gas are pretty much to BCF. Uh, that pipeline is, like I said, in the process of taking pressure off of prices right now. That's not going to last long. Sometime between the next five, six, seven, nine months, uh, that pipeline is going to fill up. Uh, that means that we're going to need another pipeline. Uh, the good news is that we've got the uh, two pipelines uh, planned. Uh, one is the, uh, the, the Kinder Eagle Claw Permian Highway project. Uh, that's, uh, again, to BCF. Uh, coming on about a year from now, and then about a year from then, the Whitewater MPLX uh, Whistler Pipeline. Those have all been FID'd, uh, and then there is another bunch of pipelines that have been discussed uh, that are not FID'd yet that may or may not come on depending on what all happens uh, with uh, production and uh, with takeaway capacity. In other words, do all these pipelines actually get built or not? We can do the same sort of stack for natural gas that we did for crude. Here's what she looks like. This is looking at only those three pipelines that have been FID'd. That's existing production. Uh, that's the base case. That's the high case. That's the problems that we're having now. Those problems go away as GCX comes on. A year from now, we can have problems again. Most likely, we will. And then a year from then, we need another pipeline. Uh, if we're in the high case, if we're in the uh, base case, we may not. So it all depends, again, primarily on that one most important variable, and that mo one most important variable is the price of crude oil. 
NGLs, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on NGLs because nobody cares about NGLs but me. Uh, but, uh, but suffice to say that NGL people really like NGLs. Uh, and there are a lot of NGL pipelines uh, that have come on over the last couple of years uh, that are coming on over the next few years. Uh, it's probably, again, more pipelines than the basin overall needs. But all pipelines start somewhere and they end somewhere. And if you've got a facility that needs takeaway capacity, you need capacity local. It doesn't matter if there's another pipeline that, that goes out of your basin that's 100 miles away. It doesn't do you any good. So there's a lot of these pipelines that are being built because they're needed in the areas where they're being built. Um, of course, there's one other issue that's going to be faced by all these guys, and that is once they break out, once they break out of the Permian, they break out to the other side. What's on the other side? That's export docks. And it doesn't matter whether it's crude oil export docks, and LNG or, uh, or LPG export docks. You got to get this stuff on the water. Effectively, every incremental molecule now uh, is going to hit those constraints uh, when, we get, when they get to the Gulf Coast. Uh, I am sure that we'll be talking about that again at a conference here at CSIS. On the other hand, if you want to know our opinion, uh, we are happy to have a conference discussing these sort of things in Houston on October 15th and 17th. Sorry, Sarah, I, I know I'm not supposed to plug this stuff. Um, uh, but uh, we're doing it at the Houstonian. It's on our website, so if you're interested, please come and join us. Thank you very much. Appreciate your attention. Great. Thank you. Okay, uh, we're going to take questions in a few minutes, um, but I've been asked to sort of also uh, give some comments on a piece that hasn't been touched on yet today, which is demand. Is there demand for all this stuff? All this NGLs and gas and crude oil? I'm going to focus primarily on crude oil in the interest of time, uh, but I'm glad to talk about NGLs as well, because I, I actually think there are a lot of people who care about NGLs, just not in this country. Um, so I think, let's see where we go here. I'm not sure what starts first. Okay, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about demand because uh, one of the things I've noticed in our industry, and when I say our industry, I mean both the energy industry and the information services industry and where they connect, is there's a lot of expertise in supply and there's a lot of expertise in demand, and they don't always sit in the same room. Uh, in fact, oftentimes they're not integrated at all. Um, and so when we look at this growth, and I have to say our, our base case um, production forecast for crude oil from the Permian is very similar to Rusty's. It's maybe a little bit lower on the base case. Um, and when we look at that, we look at uh, production potential also through the lens of demand. In other words, is there someone out there to consume this if it's produced? And that does become a constraint in our supply outlook. So it's integrated with demand. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the constraints in demand that may bring a little bit of a question mark to this kind of growth. Certainly the high case, but possibly even the base case as well. <clears throat> a couple of points I want to make right at the beginning is we have weak product demand. I think we're all very well aware of that this year. Um, but that's going to continue on, not quite as weak as it is this year, but you know, we're going to have fairly, we're not going to go back to a million barrels a day of 
uh, crude-derived product demand for some time. Um, we also have quite a bit of refining capacity being built, uh, which I'll talk a little bit about, um, and it's mainly east of Suez. Um, and much of that capacity favors heavy crude. It prefers heavy crude. Um, and obviously, a big portion of the shale is light sweet, or the exports would be light sweet, because the shale is light sweet. Um, we do expect some refinery rationalization, but it's not going to be enough to really change um, the diet of the global refining kit. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about demand. I've, I've, I've crammed a couple of different things on here. The first thing I want to talk about is really the right-hand chart. And this shows refinery throughput, annual growth in refinery throughput um, over time. And if you look at 2019, refinery throughput is only growing about 800,000 barrels a day. Even though Chinese demand throughput has been very high to absorb some of its inventory, um, the rest of the world is not very high. Um, in fact, if you take the negatives, it's actually, yeah, it's about 750 to 800,000. That's growth and throughput. Um, and yet we've produced a lot of additional crude, haven't we? Um, in 2020, we have a little bump up because we will have to increase runs to make enough marine gas oil for IMO. Um, and this, this is not an IMO conference, but uh, there's a lot of different ways to meet the IMO spec uh, bunker fuel, but clearly a piece of it will actually require higher runs. And then in, by 2021 through 2024, if you look at that dotted line, global throughput kind of cruises along at 600,000 barrels a day. And part of the reason that it cruises along at a, a number so low is because it is driven by crude demand for crude-derived products. So when you look at the IEA data, or EIA's data, or our data, or anyone's data, when they talk about total oil demand, remember, they're talking about demand for products derived from crude, but also products derived from natural gas liquids. And that natural gas liquids volume is, is really quite significant. And that's ethane competing or displacing naphtha. It's LPG from uh, NGLs uh, sort of growing faster than LPG from refining and displacing naphtha. Um, so actually, when we talk about demand, be careful that you understand that the crude-derived demand is much smaller, and that's what refiners, that's what drives what refiners need to purchase in terms of crude. The other thing I want to show is on the left-hand side. And this is, um, you know, we tend to sort of think shale is the only game in town, but there's a lot of other regions that are growing their production. Um, and we do a lot of work on cost and comparative cost of production. And uh, both in terms of uh, capital expenditures to get started, but also sustaining capex and operating costs. And this is a somewhat conservative view. We've actually run this through a cost filter, and what you can see on the left is that that sources of crude oil production that in non-OPEC countries, so that doesn't even include OPEC, that is not U.S. shale. And you'd see, you know, basically, it's Gulf of Mexico, oil sands, North Sea, Latin America, and FSU. And these are selected. There's actually a bit more elsewhere. And those, if you look at them over that 2021 to 2024 period, that averages about 400,000 barrels a day of additional supply from non-U.S. shale. And remember, our crude-derived demand is somewhere around 600,000 barrels a day. So it really makes you stop and think, well, how much more shale can we, can we put into the market?
And this all, as you know, comes down to many, many different factors, one of them being price. Oops, I want to mess up here. There we go. Um, and one of them being blending, right? So here's the increase in refining capacity over the next four or five years. And you'll see it's significant. It's about 9 million barrels a day of new capacity. Um, and we have enough capacity worldwide, actually, to make the products that are required from a refinery. Um, but we're adding more anyway. So what that means is there has to be sort of a re-optimization re of the global refining kit. We're going to see some rationalization in parts of the world. Europe is usually the target, but there could be other rationalization elsewhere. And we're going to see different refiners uh, basically making more product. So we'll see more exports from Asia, product exports, I should say, from Asia. We'll see more product exports from the Middle East. This will threaten US exports of product, although we are really good refiners, and we're very good at making clean products. So we're very competitive. So if we can continue, continue <coughs> to compete, and Asia and the Middle East can grow their exports, then there's a lot of places around the world that'll have to uh, either scale back their operations or rationalize their capacity. <clears throat> so we have this new capacity. We've done some thinking about the rationalization, generally more in Europe than elsewhere. And we've looked at the increase in production globally by quality. So look at the, the, the pie chart in the middle first. Here's our increase in production, and you can see how it's divided. Um, excuse me, this is, sorry, this is the increase in crude demand. Um, I actually took out the increase in production in the interest of time. I probably should put it back in, but this is actually crude demand uh, over the five-year period, the increase in demand by quality, right? So this is based on the new capacity, a re-optimization of the global refining kit so that the Refineries that either have lowest cost, advantage crude, or some other advantage run, and those who don't, don't run. Um, and what you see here is that um, the light, which is down in the right-hand corner, is a fairly small growth in demand for that crude. And that's over five years. Right? So, so this is what the configuration of the refineries says. But it also is what contracts say. So some of that development in uh, Asia, especially with China, have been through contracts with Arab Gulf producers. And some of that, which you would have said, well, they're building, they're integrating their refineries with pet chems, so gosh, they need some light crude so they can make naphtha, so they can put it in a steam cracker and make pet chem. But these integrated, new integrated units are actually taking a slightly different path and they're, they're running medium and heavy crude, building larger hydrocrackers, and then taking the hydrocracker output into reformers to make aromatics. So it's a slight change in technology, and it's designed in part to be able to tie up with Arab Gulf producers uh, to make more petrochemicals. So it's not the traditional approach to petrochemical manufacturing or petro petrochemical feedstock manufacturing. So, uh, I think we have to bear this in mind as we start talking about how much crude comes down these pipelines, goes through the docks, and gets on a tanker and heads out from the United States. So this brings you to the, the, the conclusion, well, what happens, how do you move it into these markets? 
if it's a, it's a tight competitive market, well, shale exports will have to target existing refineries probably more so than the new ones. So this gets back to your re-optimization of the global refining kit. Who's running? What products are they making? Who, have they tie who do they have long-term contracts with? Who are they tying up contracts with? And what's left uh, for uh, what refiners will survive and be able to take U.S. shale? And generally speaking, shale will head towards simpler refineries, which are in Asia and Europe. Or shale has to be priced in such a way that it can compete with medium and go into some of these more sophisticated refineries. So it has to be aggressively priced. And that's not even taking into account if there's a change in OPEC policy on production. Everything I've talked about here has not taken into account OPEC. We've continued to believe that they, re they are a remainder supplier. They supply whatever the last barrel is. But what if policy changes? What if after the Saudi IPO, the policy in Saudi Arabia changes and it becomes more of a competition for market share? Then the trends that I'm talking about become even more powerful. I don't know if this is my last one. It is. So I'm going to stop there. That's a lot of information. We've had two great speakers. I'd like to um, start questions. So if anyone has a question, please raise your hand. I guess I get to pick, don't I? This is great. Okay. Thank you, uh, Paul Sankey at Mizuho. R Rusty, you said that every molecule needs to be exported. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It, I guess, implies no additional capacity to process on the Gulf Coast. Correct. Uh, so, just looking at each one of the commodities, um, we're still going to be importing a lot of crude oil, because, but because of the things that uh, Lex here has talked about, uh, the majority of the crude oil that's used here in the United, needed here in the United States is either heavy or, or, or medium grade at, at best. That means most of the light crude is going to need to be exported, and so we have to have enough export capacity to be able to do that. Um, there's a lot of export capacity now. There's a lot of new export capacity coming online. Corpus has just uh, increased their capacity uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks. So it's going to happen, and new export terminals are going to be built, but effectively all of the incremental production from the United States uh, that is light is not going to be used here. It's going to be used in global markets, and it's going to have to find a market like what Sarah was saying. Uh, and it's going to have to be priced to find a market. Uh, the price solves all problems, right? Same things going on for, with uh, with LNG, except it's it's more uh, it's more finite. Uh, we don't have any more demand for natural gas here in the United States, assuming normal weather. So every incremental molecule of natural gas is going to need to be exported, or the market will not balance. If the market does not balance, there's only one other variable that can cause the market to balance, and that is a lower price that will discourage drilling uh, that will balance the market from that perspective. So that means, again, every incremental mo uh, molecule is going to have to be exported. We're, uh, on NGLs, we're already exporting uh, around 35% of all the NGLs that we produce. Uh, so it's already happened to NGLs in terms of propane. We're exporting about 55% of all of the propane that we produce. So every single gallon of propane that comes out incremental is going to have to go in the water.
Thanks, uh, Rusty. Question on the break-even calculation on the gas. Is that uh, on the entire volume of produced gas in Permian, or is it just the gas that doesn't have capacity out now? No, that's, that's if you look at the uh, total production of gas, natural gas liquids, and crude oil from a given well in the Permian, looking at a typical cost of that well, and then saying, assuming that I can sell all three of those commodities at a Permian price, then what could I, in this case, give my gas away for and still be break-even on my well? Okay, thanks. So the bottom really is a lot lower if, <laughs> in terms of the distress price. It's a byproduct. Yeah. So natural, mm -hmm. natural gas is a byproduct. It behaves exactly the way a byproduct should behave. That's what we've seen happened over the last six, nine months, yep. is that I can give a byproduct away as long as I produce my primary product, and that's crude oil. Thanks. Uh, Robert Kleinberg. Uh, Rusty, what's your take on Exco versus Williams? Um, what's my take on that? Um, first of all, it's a complicated question. Um, and uh, I'm, I'll make this up, I guess, as I go along. Uh, uh, like Scott said, Railroad Commission says that basically the pipeline and the producer ought to work it out between themselves. At least as I understand the deal uh, is that uh, uh, Exco had a commitment to move barrels. If they moved their barrels, they would be worse off if they didn't produce those barrels. They'd be worse off uh, uh, economically than, uh, than transporting uh, those barrels and then selling them at current market prices. Because if you're gonna if you're gonna flare, you're gonna flare essentially at the wellhead. So the decision from Exco's perspective was a was a rational economic decision in order to do that. The Railroad Commission made the decision that we're not going to interfere in a rational economic consequence. The companies ought to work themselves work that out amongst themselves. We've got the flaring issue that uh, that Steve talked about that's on everybody's radar screen, and my sense is that the industry needs to do more in order to fix that, uh, but at least the indication that we saw out of the Railroad Commission uh, in that particular decision was they're not ready to jump into the middle of that right now. I have no clue about why the Railroad Commission would make the decision that they did. And I haven't, I haven't read all the materials. It may be in there. Maybe the decision's buried inside the, uh, all the, the discussion, but I haven't read it, so I don't know. Hi, uh, Eric Lee, Citigroup. Uh, I wanted to ask about two, um, two risks to, to the outlook. I mean, there are many, but just two. One, one relates to the crude quality issue and what you mentioned about demand. If a lot more Permian production growth is WTL, very light, which is very NAFTA focused, how does that compete with all the NGLs and for the, for the pet chem demand? The second one is something that I actually really wanted to ask the earlier panel too, but uh, what with this focus you mentioned earlier on the energy transition, the kinds of policies that the democratic candidates have been talking about in terms of regulations on the shale and uh, crude sector, um, whatever one thinks the probability of that is, can somebody talk a little bit to the production outlook if some of those major uh, policies hit the shale and oil and gas sector? 
you know, in, in terms of, I'll, I'll take the first one, no. and I won't touch the second one with the 10-foot pole. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the first question is, I'm getting a lot more uh, very light crude oil out of, for example, the Delaware side, and if I get more of that production, uh, more of that production, and particularly if more of it gets neat to the coast, which is what a lot of pipelines are trying to do right now, that is going to compete directly with NGLs, uh, and therefore it is going to make NGLs have to price themselves that much lower in order to be able to capture market share. Will they do that? Yes, they will because NGLs are effectively a byproduct too, for the most part. Uh, and therefore, NGLs are going to price themselves out of the United States into that market, so you end up with, with a dogfight between NGLs and condensates and naphtha-related crude oil. What does that mean? That means that the light heavy differential effectively stays narrow, unless, of course, somebody does something crazy with IMO or some Venezuela or something like that, and then it all gets very, very complicated. So, yes, you're right in terms of exactly how to play that card. Um, I don't know. I don't think we've got enough variables. We, we don't have enough variables right now defined as to really understand how to play it. I'll let somebody else take that other one. I'll maybe weigh in, and then you, sure. you may have something to add. I you know, Schlumberger doesn't lobby. We're not going to tell a regulator what to do. I think that, you know, I touched on it a little bit in the challenges discussion, is that you know, these are businesses we're talking about. The financial returns of the industry in general are under, um, have been under scrutiny. So figuring out what the solution is in a way with that lens is, is going to be a challenge. So you have the option, you know, to penalize or tax or to, to do incentives or credits. And so you know, credits are going to probably be an easier way to, for, for example, you know, carbon tax credit, things like that, that to incentivize a behavior um, in, in the, the financial climate that we're talking about. But um, it's, it's going to be, uh, it, it's, it's the, I will say, so from a service company perspective, you know, there's a lot of customers globally that are asking questions around what we're doing on sustainability in general. And can we measure it, in particular on the environmental side? But it's not factoring into the commercial decision yet um, for even operators that have, in a big way, for even operators that have been quite vocal about it. And I think that's because, again, this is a financial discussion. So uh, there, something probably does need to change, but um, it's credit yeah. or tax. The question was, um, well, the second question, was uh, if there was a change in administration to a liberal Democrat, next, would there be a change in the shale development? Is that correct? I mean, I, I'll go further. I think it, it, it leads to a hard landing for shale. Um, not in the next couple of years, obviously, because it takes time to change policy. And, you know, we've, the rollback of the automaker, of the uh, fuel economy, and the sort of lack of effort on the flaring, uh, on mandating the flaring, change in flaring, you know, those things are the kinds of things that could sort of flip very quickly in terms of policy, but then take years to sort of, not the flaring, but the, certainly the vehicles. Um, so, you know, now we're talking about what happens in that sort of 2023, 4, 5 to 2030. And I think it could be, if, that, if there was a liberal Democrat that was in for two terms, I think it's a, it could be a very, very powerful impact. Is that the, we got all your questions? Yeah. Any other questions? Lastly, you say that all this product is in that 
We're not even supposed to wait for the Mac. There you go. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, I can always rely on you, Rusty. So you say all these products are going to be geared towards exports. How do you reconcile uh, eminent domain for export projects? Eminent domain for export projects? Is that going to be an issue? I don't have a clue, Renato. Uh, I, I, I've, I've never even thought about that. Are you saying that somebody down on the Gulf Coast to build a terminal needs to have eminent domain in order to put up an asset? The pipelines. And a pipeline? In Texas. I don't know. If I was going to ask somebody like that, I'd probably turn to the guy right behind you, Joey, and ask him what the answer was. I don't, I, I mean, I, I'm, you're, you're outside of my area of expertise or not, though. I'm sorry, can't, can't, can't help you with that one. Thank you, thanks very much, uh, Sarah Ladislaw with CSIS. So a couple questions I had. Um, uh, Rusty, I wanna congratulate you because the presentation you just gave could have been called I Told You So because you did come and tell everybody that was gonna happen and it did, so congratulations. Uh, uh, the, but uh, can, I wanna ask two questions, one for you, one for Lise, and, and Sarah, I think you might be able to comment on both of them. Uh, what about Mexican natural gas demand? Uh, so you'd also made some comments, I think, in one of your previous presentations about there's pipelines headed in that direction, there's a supposition about what demand's gonna be there, but maybe we're not so confident about the numbers, so I'd just like you to talk about that market opportunity. Uh, and then Lisa, you talked about optimization of the resource and systems cost, which is, I think, actually a really nice segue between some of what we're talking about here and some of what we'll talk about on the next panel, which is, the pace of growth has been huge, right? And so there's some questions about what optimization looks like and how that actually gets carried out. If it's carried out on a company by company basis, if it's carried out on a basin basis, like what does that look like? And, and what did you mean by that when you were talking about it? And Sarah, if you've got anything to add. I'll go first. Well, I think she had the first question. Mexico? Yeah, Mexico. So, uh, Mexico. Uh, so uh, uh, on one of those stack slides, I didn't, I didn't point it out, but there's a, a little slice on that slide uh, that shows what our predictions are for gas to go to Mexico in the stack. So we don't show the total BCF, 3 BCF of capacity, we show what our prediction is. Uh, what I can tell you is that uh, before I came to this conference, we redid that slide. And what we did is we cut about 0.4 BCF off of that slide, essentially going out over the next five years. So that doesn't mean that we cut the growth, we just cut the overall trajectory of the growth simply because there's so much uncertainty right now about what's going on. So all we can do is just look at the level of uncertainty, read what there is to read, and make some sort of general guess of hey, the, the demand is there. There's no issue about whether the demand is there. The only issue is what sort of political process the pipeline operators and the power generators and the existing uh, regulatory regime is going to be forced to go through in order to, make that to get that demand satisfied. Since it looks like as, as, we, as we sit here in September, that's going to be harder than it looked like last time I was here, uh, then it's 400,000 a day less than it was. 
questions? Yeah, so oh, sorry. It's okay. You rarely move on there. So about the optimization, I would, I would talk about two things. One is kind of the nature of the discussion, I think, that needs to happen uh, within the industry and between service supply and operators, and then two, maybe the technology. So in terms of the nature of the discussion, I alluded to it a little bit, but it's um, creating the space to have a discussion around win-win and not compromise because in compromise somebody loses and you know Andrew talked about it a little bit in the first one you know lots of times the it's the service company that loses the EBITDA if you look at the large OFS service and equipment companies versus 2014 it's half of what it was um, so it's having the, the the space to have the discussion to say how can we together spend less money and make more margin and you have to open the kimono to have that discussion you have to have a level of trust that um, in particular in north america land but in general isn't the type of discussion that commercially we've had previously so figuring out how to create the space to do that is is not an easy thing um, but the appetite you know the, the conversations at the ceo level that i've had in the, the last two years versus earlier in my career the the there's much more appetite to have that discussion because as an industry, we're being asked to do something different. So nature of the discussion has to change. And that's to create space for the investment burden around the technology. You know, the, the, the service and equipment side spends a lot of the capex around um, technology investment. So again, you go back to the burden of where the returns are and the appetite for saying, I'm going to invest in something earth shattering, uh, step transformational, um, and then be, 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 be beat up by my investors because I can't get a return on that um, is, is going to be a challenge. And to what the technology looks like, I think, you know, I talked about digital a little bit, but it's, it's two things. It's taking this system approach. So it's, um, and the example I use, if you think about sustainability, is, you know, we have a biodegradable drilling mud, 100% biodegradable. As a widget, the person buying drilling mud, it's going to cost more whatever increment more than the drilling mud that um, is the, you know, the alternative. The total system cost is less because you have zero waste, 100% biodegradable. But the space to say, let's use that, if we spend less and it's a, a better environmental footprint, you know, that's kind of, again, the, the, the nature of the discussion. But taking the system approach, looking at not just the hardware and the widgets and how they talk to each other, but the software around that, the whole system, and saying, again, what's the, the optimized performance? And digital does play a role. Um, I, I saw a, a really... Um, embarrassing slide on kind of where our industry sits versus other industries with leveraging digital. We've used digital, I think, to drive operating efficiency a bit, but we haven't at all touched in a big way um, artificial intelligence on kind of the design and the, the, um, the, the best recipe, if you will. And whereas other industries, and it's in digital, I mean kind of other industries have transformed how consumers buy things. When you think about retail and, and um, transportation and things like that, in our industry, we haven't, I think, really, we've just uh, barely touched on the opportunity on the digital side. Hmm. Um, I'm going to insert a question here. Before, we're running out of time, I think. We only have a few minutes left. Um, but I have a question for Rusty that I want to ask before we break up. And that is, you've talked about the 3 million barrels a day of additional production by 2026. You've shown the, the, the size of the pipeline is more than sufficient to carry it to, to the coast. How big is the bottleneck on the docks? Or how small? It is a very difficult question to ask. 
If you look at LNG, you can open up any filings with the government and see exactly what LNG capacity is. It's pretty close to the same way for LPG. Mm -hmm. For crude oil, on the other hand, it's how much crude oil can you actually get to the dock? How much crude storage do they have in order to be able to stage the cargoes up? How much capacity do they have to actually get on the boat? How much uh, how many ships can they actually get into their dock and then get out of the dock once they've done that? So you've actually got to model the whole exercise. We've gone through uh, that process and, and think that there's about five million barrels a day of capacity there right now. And when we show that to folks, the, the, the general uh, uh, concept uh, or the general feedback that we get is, yeah, that's probably right. Uh, and therefore there's surplus capacity right now, why do we need to build any more? Number one, it's not necessarily in the right place. And, uh, and number two, those numbers assume that everything goes okay. So I don't have fog on the ship channel or I don't have a, uh, a, 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 a ship that runs into another ship and closes the ship channel down for, for, for three weeks or whatever like we had uh, this past year. So. The answer is, first of all, it's a fuzzy number, and second of all, if you look at the number of uh, offshore uh, platforms for crude oil that have been announced over the course of the last year, I think it's about 13 million barrels a day. I'm pretty confident we don't need all those, mm -hmm. um, so uh, we, we probably need one. Uh, there's, I believe, only one that's reached FID so far, and that's Enterprise. So uh, I, my guess is there's one that happens, and my guess is that the, uh, the loop facility uh, in Louisiana gets basically re-optimized so it can flow uh, uh, in, in an export mode most of the time rather than the way it's structured right now where most of the time it can't. So I think if those two things happen uh, and all of the other smaller facilities uh, implement the uh, incremental expansions they're talking about doing, my sense is that the Gulf Coast export capacity is not going to be a bottleneck. Right, thank you. Last question from the audience. So, uh, hi, Ooh, got it. Hi, I, I'm Jordan uh, with Eni, the uh, Italian company. Some people call it Eni, E-N-I, but uh, either way. Um, my question was about methane leaking and how that factors into the sustainability mindset uh, in the Permian Basin. I know we've talked about flaring, but uh, methane leaks seem to be garnering a bit more attention simply because of the heat trapping uh, characteristic of the gas. Uh, I think just yesterday BP announced that they were going to be putting in like industry first uh, identification technology to find their methane leaks, leaks and try to close them. So I'm just wondering how is that making a difference? Is that factoring into the mindset of any of the companies in the Permian? And if so, um, in what ways? Thank you. Well, um, you know, API is kind of leading an effort to pull together the major gas producers to monitor, measure, and report. So this is fairly new, the, the energy uh, partnership. They, it represents a large percentage of the gas produced in the U.S. Um, and uh, the first report actually just came out. So it's, it's, again, it's fairly new. There haven't been ambitions set to say, what are we going to do? But um, there certainly is a widespread participation from the large gas producers to, to uh, take some responsibility as, uh, as the first panel was talking about. So. Great, thank you. I think we have to wrap up, all right? We're done? Okay, we're going to take a short coffee break and then come back.
Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Kevin Book. Uh, you may know me from my role at Clearview Energy Partners, or you may know me as a research associate here at CSIS. I get to wear many hats with this particular hairstyle. Um, I'm very pleased to invite you to the, the, the third panel here today, which is looking at economic, environmental, and social considerations. Uh, I think that one of the things that's very uh, interesting is that there was a lot of appetite for this discussion. Uh, there were a number of mentions in the earlier panels about some of the, the very considerations that we're going to talk about in this one. Uh, to frame the discussion a little bit, it, I think Rusty's graphs leave no question about what a boom looks like. Uh, that's what the molecule story looks like. What about the other stories? We, we heard some flaring discussions. As we know, extraterrestrials are now navigating by the flares of the Permian when they come to take the cattle from Texas. Uh, so uh, there's obviously been some externalities that have come up. If you've been to Midland recently, you probably may have noticed that unemployment is very low, uh, property values rather high. Uh, there's, there's a number of considerations about whether there's a boom and, and, and bust cycle uh, and, and how to manage the, the growth and, and the impacts. What does it mean for, what does it mean for the, the broader environmental picture in Texas? Uh, in just a few hours, in about 10 hours, there's going to be 10 people running for the nomination of a major political party here in the United States who are going to be in the oil capital of Texas at least, and America probably, and maybe the world, calling for an end to some of the practices that have been so widely observed and discussed in this discussion today so far. Some of them on the basis of some of these characteristics, these environmental and social concerns that they have. How relevant a concern should that be? Will they be allowed out of Houston at all? We'll see. That's a separate topic, I suppose. In any case, in anticipation of all that lies ahead, I want to introduce uh, three very excellent speakers who will be presenting each in turn. Uh, then I will ask them some questions, and then we'll open it up to questions. So Daniel Ramey, uh, who's with the Resources for the Future, where he's a senior research associate, is widely uh, regarded for his work on, on oil and gas regulation and taxation, and he'll be talking about economic, social, and community issues. Uh, next, from David McCabe from the Clean Air Task Force, where he's a senior scientist with expertise in methane emissions on oil and gas, uh, and you'll be hearing from him about methane emissions from oil and gas. Uh, and we'll hear from Mary Lou Hastings, who's at the Cynthia and George Mitchell Foundation, where she's vice president of sustainability programs, uh, and so she's a specialist in the interactions between science and public policy. And unsurprisingly, based on her title, she'll be talking about sustainability, uh, and, and, and in particular, some of the development impacts and how land use and water issues become part of the discussion. So uh, with that, I think we'll turn it to you, Daniel, and get us started. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin, and uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here. It's really an honor to speak alongside uh, my colleagues and friends and, and experts uh, who have been on the stage this morning. My name is Daniel Ramey. I'm with uh, Resources for the Future. Uh, I also uh, am a lecturer at the University of Michigan's Ford School of Public Policy. So I just flew in from Ann Arbor, and um, it's lovely to be in DC. Uh, I'm gonna talk about, uh, as Kevin mentioned, economic and social impacts of oil and gas development. I'm not gonna talk about aliens abducting cows, although there's a video game that I love called Big Buck Hunter, uh, where one of the bonus rounds is you can shoot the UFOs that are trying to abduct the cattle from various fields. So I do have some experience with that. Okay, 
Um, here's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about uh, just three, uh, three issues. Each of these could fill, you know, an hour-long presentation, but I'm just going to try to hit a couple of highlights. So I'll speak briefly to the economic impacts of uh, increased development in the Permian. I'll speak about some of the social impacts that we've seen uh, on the ground and in the research. And then I'll mention a couple policy issues that I think might be useful in addressing some of these challenges. So first, economic impacts. Uh, the first thing I want to say about estimating economic impacts is that it's actually kind of hard to do it precisely. Uh, there are a lot of assumptions that one needs to make about how many jobs are created, how much GDP is uh, induced from an additional oil rig or an additional uh, oil job uh, happening on the ground. And so the literature that you see out in the world uh, varies widely. And uh, a lot of the variation has to do with what are called multiplier effects. So how much additional growth does one unit uh, of additional uh, oil create in the Permian Basin. So that's complicated. I'm not going to get into it. Luckily, I don't need to because you can just uh, directly observe the impact through uh, government data and statistics that tells you that the economic effects have been large uh, and they have been positive. So if you just look at Midland and Nectar counties, right, Midland and Odessa uh, in the Permian Basin and compare it to the U.S. total, over the last 15 years or so, population has grown uh, much more rapidly in the region than it has in the U.S. as a whole. Not a surprise. Employment has grown at 74% over the last 17 years compared with about 20% for the US as a whole. And most staggeringly to me, per capita income has increased by about 18% in the US and more than half uh, in the Permian Basin. So that's really remarkable uh, economic growth uh, that we just observed directly. We don't have to do any fancy modeling to, to make these uh, conclusions. And what's driving all that growth? Well, the answer is obvious to everyone in this room, but the data actually show it. It's oil and gas activity. So if you look at all the sectors of the economy that uh, the Bureau of Economic Analysis uh, gives you data for, most of those sectors have been relatively flat or growing uh, modestly, and mining driven by oil and gas has been growing very rapidly over the last uh, 15 years or so. So this is a simple way to say that the economic uh, impacts have been large and positive for the most part. But those benefits are not distributed evenly among the population. So this is where we get some of the downsides uh, of a boom. Mineral owners, of course, stand to benefit handsomely, especially if they own large tracts. Uh, workers who are able to enter the workforce also benefit substantially, both those who are in the region and those who migrate into the region to take some of those jobs. But there are others who are less likely to directly benefit from the boom. Uh, those who can't work, either because they're disabled, they're elderly, or for other reasons. Uh, those who rent rather than own property. Uh, and those who are split estate owners. So they may own the surface, but not the minerals. These are folks who might have to deal with the negative impacts of oil and gas activity happening near them, but they don't benefit substantially uh, from the mineral revenues that mineral holders do. So that's all short-term stuff. When we think about long-term economic impacts, um, the research is less clear on where this is all taking the region. The, uh, the growth in oil and gas activity, again, has clearly been beneficial in the near term, but over the long term, there's a concern that all of this activity on oil and gas could crowd out investment in other sectors. And that could limit economic diversification in a region that is already very heavily reliant on the oil and gas sector as a whole. 
And so the research that's been done over the last 20 years looking at oil and gas intensive regions and comparing it to the rest of the country as a whole is actually mixed. Uh, some of that research finds that oil and gas intensive regions do better over time, uh, over decades I'm talking about, uh, than the country as a whole. And others find that oil and gas producing regions do suffer from some of this crowding out effect. This lack of economic diversification uh, makes uh, every oil and gas producing region susceptible to booms and busts. As we've heard uh, already today, the Permian Basin is the lowest cost producing region in the US, which makes it less susceptible to the bust than, than most other regions. So that's beneficial certainly for, for the Permian. And then the last thing uh, to say, I didn't just add this slide, I actually had this in er earlier, but the, the last question we were talking about in the final panel is that the potential effects of climate policy, uh, if they're substantial and ambitious, do have the potential to exacerbate that long-term risk for the region, particularly if it continues to become more reliant on the oil and gas sector. Again, this is unlikely to be something that happens overnight, but when we think about the next 10 or 20 years, I think it has to come into the discussion. All right, I skipped past my cool picture of uh, a, a pump jack in someone's backyard. This is Seminole, Texas um, in Andrews County, I wanna say. Um, okay, so now talking about some of the social impacts. First, as Kevin mentioned, property values have increased dramatically uh, in the Permian. If you look at, again, Midland and Nectar counties and compare it to the country as a whole, you see that uh, the region is outperforming the US average. Looks like the slide didn't render quite correctly. The top line that looks black is Midland County. The bottom line that looks red is Ector County. And that middle line that's, in, that's orange, that's the US average. So you can see, uh, especially in the last year and a half, property values going very quickly uh, in the Permian Basin. That creates, again, major benefits for property owners, but creates challenges for renters and others that might be looking to move into the area. Another social impact that uh, people are concerned about uh, are the effects on education, uh, both K through 12 education and higher education. And here there's some good news and bad news uh, to tell. On the good news side, when it comes to K through 12, growth in property tax revenues have been substantial in the Permian and that increases the tax base for local education. That's a positive story. On the negative side of the ledger, the rapid population growth that we've seen has led to overcrowding in some classrooms, at least anecdotally, that's what we hear. There hasn't actually been a lot of research that supports uh, that idea, but if you look at news stories you know, from, from across Texas, you certainly see examples of it happening. Um, so a mixed bag for local education. When we think about higher education, there's also a, a, a good side, bad side. Um, on the good side, the increased production on state lands in Texas uh, goes into the UT system, or at least a substantial portion of the revenue goes into the UT system, and that's been a major benefit uh, for capital upgrades uh, and other investments uh, in the University of Texas. But there's a variety of recent research that's come out of the economics literature and other, uh, other areas that show that uh, high schoolers, if they are uh, living near oil and gas production regions, they might be incentivized to leave high school and not go to college, but instead enter the workforce earlier and don't develop those secondary education skills. So that's a great story for them in the near term, right? They can go make $80,000, $100,000 a year driving a truck. Um, when otherwise they might have been going to school. But again, if you think about five, 10, 15 years down the road, if they haven't developed skills that they need to, uh, to thrive in a changed economy, that can lead to risks over the longer term. 
Okay, a uh, couple more notes on uh, social impacts. Uh, industry traffic is a headache, it's kind of a mundane headache, but it's also a real public health uh, concern. So in the Permian Basin, you have about 2% of the Texas population, but you have about 11% of all traffic fatalities. So that's a statistic that speaks for itself. Uh, it's not any news to any oil and gas folks in the room, but it's a real concern. There are other social impacts that are harder to quantify, but that are worth mentioning and they're important. I know Mayor Lewis thought a lot about these types of issues. Uh, the change in the pace of life, particularly for those in the more rural parts of the Permian, and a change of a sense of place. If you're used to a place being one way and then suddenly it changes to become something different, the economic benefits are quite clear, uh, but the social impacts that people actually experience on a day-to-day -day basis might not all be uh, rosy. Okay, just a couple more slides here. Um, I want to briefly mention a couple policy issues that I think might be helpful in addressing some of the economic challenges and the social challenges uh, that we've been seeing in the Permian. This is Loving County, by the way, a big flare. I'm not gonna talk about flaring because we'll talk about that later, but, um, but that was a big flare. Okay. Um, Texas tax policy has a variety of interesting uh, characteristics, and a couple of those characteristics actually create challenges, additional challenges to some of the, 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 the issues that I've been talking about over the last few minutes. First, Texas allocates relatively little or, or virtually no revenue from its state severance tax back to localities. Um, that's fairly uncommon. Most other states allocate at least some revenue back to the local level. That might not be a problem in and of itself because counties and city governments collect property taxes and sales taxes and all that has been going up. The issue with property taxes in Texas is that there's a provision called a rollback provision which basically uh, restricts the amount of additional revenue that counties can raise each year. So they can't basically raise more than 8% of additional revenue without going to the voters and asking for a special election. That politically constrains the ability of counties to raise revenue to keep up with the population growth. It's a little complicated, but basically if, um, if population goes up by 50%, uh, the counties may only be able to raise revenue by 8% or 16% over time. So that creates a mismatch in the ability of local governments to fund some services, particularly roads and other infrastructure. Um, Texas also does not have a long-term permanent fund, as some other states do, uh, that some other states use to cushion uh, economic downturns or to enhance economic diversification in their states. Texas does have a rainy day fund, which is quite helpful, but it's kind of different from a permanent fund. Finally, uh, industry efforts uh, such as the Permian Basin Strategic Partnership are certainly helpful in addressing some of the social challenges that I mentioned earlier with education and roads and things like that. But if you look at the scale of the problem, uh, the Permian Basin Strategic Partnership, helpful as it is, is not sufficient to sort of fill that gap entirely. All right, summing up, we have the good, which is economic growth, employment growth, public revenue growth, all dramatically uh, benefiting the region and the state. The bad, strain on infrastructure, some strains on education, and strains and risks to vulnerable populations. And then the uncertain, uh, which to me is mostly about economic diversification, thinking out over the next couple of decades. Uh, what does the Permian Basin look like in a world where climate change policy actually bites uh, on oil demand over the long term? And I'm a researcher, so more research into some of these questions would be really useful. There's a bunch of great research questions that we have at RFF and elsewhere in the uh, research community that would be helpful to get a, a better answer to some of these issues that I've raised. 
Last slide, uh, we at RFF, Alan Krupnik, who's in the room, and myself, we've put together a website that we call Shark, the Shale Research Clearinghouse. Uh, I'm gonna do a quick plug for that. It's basically a resource that compiles all of the research, both peer-reviewed and so-called gray literature, into a really easy-to-use website where you can click on things and learn all about water quality impacts or some of the social impacts that I've talked about. We've also developed two-page issue briefs that very briefly summarize the state of the literature for people who don't have time to read a whole bunch of academic studies. So I hope that's useful for you, and of course I'd be happy to answer any questions later today or over email. Thanks very much. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I am, uh, thank you for inviting me and I'm pleased to uh, go over some of the impacts that we've been able to quantify or at least observe um, from air pollution impacts from Permian development. I'll talk about the climate impacts, obviously methane and flaring have already come up, but also some of the air quality impacts that I think are very important to keep in mind. Uh, obviously, I don't need to bring up the issue of methane, but I thought it would be helpful to step back a little bit and just explain some of the basic uh, reasons why there's so much concern about methane. Um, <clears throat> this is a complex figure the, the, the figure in the, in the top right, um, which hasn't gotten nearly enough airtime, it's from uh, the last IPC assessment report, and it's showing us something very simple. Uh, methane, the second bar there, is about half the size of the CO2 bar. And what that means is of the warming that is occurring right now, that's changing the climate right now, Methane is causing about half as much as CO2. So it's not a small portion of the climate problem. It's a very substantial contributor. Um, methane levels are also rising dramatically, uh, especially since in, in the last couple years, but since 2006, they've been rising dramatically. This is not understood. Uh, if anyone blames this entirely on US oil and gas, they're oversimplifying it badly. And if Someone says it's clear that U.S. oil and gas is not contributing. That's also badly oversimplifying things. Uh, it's, a, it's a complex issue. Um, trying to make out of the many global sources of methane what is, uh, what, what is changing that's leading to this strong atmospheric rise. Nevertheless, um, <clears throat> that rise in methane is imperiling our efforts to limit temperature rise, that's very clear. They really, this, this rise was not really anticipated um, in climate uh, mitigation models, for example. And what is, what is very clear is that oil and gas is a huge contributor both to US methane and global methane. Um, it's the largest industrial source. And as such, because methane is the industry's product, it's clearly one of the cheapest and most feasible sources to, uh, to reduce emissions. Um, when you're looking at agricultural methane, you're talking about methane that's dispersed over a landscape and diluted. So it's always going to be more expensive to reduce those emissions than to keep methane in a natural gas pipe. 
In the US, we have extensive research that has demonstrated that uh, the industry is leaking substantially more methane than um, EPA estimates. Um, and the paper I cite there has received a lot of airtime. It came out from uh, EDF scientists and a number of coworkers last summer, um, showing a 60% um, 60 higher emissions than EPA estimated. So that's an over 2% leak rate nationally. Unfortunately, mainly because of the size and actually the weather in the Permian, there has been relatively uh, few observations in the Permian of overall leak rate, overall basin-wide emissions. Uh, however, recent work uh, from the University of Wyoming that was uh, supported by EDF is showing that uh, emissions there are at least as leaky as in the rest of the US. So this adds up to an enormous quantity of methane. Speaking very vaguely and generally, um, over the short term, with methane, you have to think about um, short-term impacts as well as the long-term 100-year impacts that are often looked at with greenhouse gases. Over the short term, methane from the Permian is probably more warming the climate more than all the CO2 from coal consumed in Texas. So it's a very substantial problem. And all I'll say in terms of looking at this sort of changing from a basin-wide point of view to a site-by-site -site point of view is the observation that the Permian is leakier than um, the US as a whole is very consistent with what folks with IR cameras are seeing in the field. So these are just a couple stills from videos they've shot at uh, facilities. Both of these are in Reeves County. Um, that's a, the one on the left is showing a vent, vent that's just unlit. Uh, I'm sorry, a flare stack that's unlit and just full venting. Uh, and the other one is a centralized uh, oil processing facility that's basically venting all the, all the gas that's flashing out of the oil. Um, both of these problems were ongoing problems that weren't mitigated over a period of, of days or weeks or months, uh, despite efforts by, um, to notify authorities, et cetera. We think it's really important to look beyond methane because obviously natural gas, especially um, at the production stage, has a lot of other uh, compounds in it besides methane, and those affect air quality. Um, toxics create a cancer risk throughout the Permian Basin that is uh, well above EPA's level of concern for people living, working, traveling in the Permian. Um, and <clears throat> so I think the dark, the, the dark red here is uh, countywide, the level of concern is about three, is at least three times higher um, than EPA's level of concern. Odessa and Midland, I think it's five times higher. Um, these are actually badly underestimated because this is based on 2014 emissions and obviously with the great increase in, in production, emissions have risen. These, this is straight from EPA data and unfortunately EPA hasn't produced an update to those uh, 2014 estimates. Um, additionally, beyond the toxic compounds, emissions from oil and gas also uh, create ozone smog, um, 
we did some modeling a couple years ago showing that uh, kids in Texas have um, roughly 150,000 asthma attacks attributable to emissions from the oil and gas industry. I want to emphasize there that's from the entire U.S. oil and gas industry, uh, not just the Permian, but it is just a Texas um, snapshot. So clearly the Permian will be a large contributor to that. Uh, lots of talk about flaring. Uh, I just want to say a couple things about it. Uh, obviously, routine flaring is wasteful, um, but it's also harmful to communities that bear the impacts of that pollution. Um, you can see in that photo a little bit of that soot coming out of that flame. Sometimes these flames are very sooty. Sometimes they burn cleaner. Um, as far as I can tell, it seems to vary based on whether anybody cares rather than you know, the composition of the gas or anything like that. Um, and <clears throat> obviously that, that the soot from those, those flares is no better than diesel PM or, or other sources of PM, uh, particulate matter, sorry. Um, just a couple things, Permian flaring is growing rapidly, everybody said that. And Rusty, I have to disagree on the Railroad Commission's data. You see here, uh, the red bars are Railroad Commission data for flaring and the orange bars are what's observed from the satellites. Um, the satellite data isn't perfect, but it is carefully calibrated, uh, and the satellite data will tend to miss the smaller flares, the smallest flares maybe I should say, so it is probably an underestimate. So we think there's a lot of reason to believe the uh, Railroad Commission numbers are too low. Um, I'll skip this over, it's just showing you what everybody here knows, which is that Flaring is dominated by the Permian. So, <clears throat> one of the most important things about these sources of pollution which I've just discussed, or the pollution I've just discussed, is that we have the means to address them. It's not rocket science, it's plumbing. And um, it's been extensively documented that these sources of pollution can be cleaned up at reasonable costs without shutting wells in, basically. Uh, those are a couple reports that uh, my group and EDF put out, um, focusing on flaring alternatives, uh, focusing on how to clean up methane, and the middle one that um, was uh, commissioned by EDF focused on how many jobs you can create uh, from the methane reduction uh, industry, essentially. And so, to be very clear, you know, the, the question came up about impacts of, um, of policy, climate policy. Not getting into whether climate policy affects demand. If we put that aside, if we clean up methane, the impacts would be based, the economic impacts on activity in the Permian will be trivial. Uh, we know this, the costs are tiny compared to the costs of developing uh, a facility in the Permian. So, for example, we're, we're arguing right now a lot about leak detection. A leak detection inspection for a well pad costs like 600 bucks. So I don't think that's going to affect, um, you know, whether you do that twice or three times or, or, or once a year is, is really going to affect an, an investment decision. So um, just in terms of prognosis, this is kind of a hokey graph, but I think I want to just make a, a clear point with it. Um, these problems are, are simply, it, it's, it's 
very clear that they're only going to get worse unless governments put in place enforceable, reasonable, cost-effective standards that will limit these sources of pollution. The reason I put up this hokey graph is because uh, this is the reported methane emissions uh, from the Permian, reported to EPA. And it's only showing two years because the, uh, before 2017, there were fewer sources that had to be included. So you can't compare 2016 and 2017 data um, without a lot of adjustments. So industry likes to talk about this a lot. And they say, well, look, our emissions are flat, even though production is growing dramatically. Um, so, you know, there's not really a problem here. And I, I just want to make a couple points. One is that um, the number is roughly an order of magnitude too low because the emissions that I showed you in those still pictures a couple slides ago simply aren't captured here. And um, that's verified by measurements on site and by uh, other observations. But the second thing is this is only looking at methane. You can see that CO2 emissions actually over that, over that period rose 17%. So we're not going in the right direction, not at all. And that, of course, is driven by flaring, by other activity, but mainly by flaring. So um, those impacts are simply going to get worse. And uh, I think it's, it's very clear that what we need is standards to uh, address these problems. So that's it. Thank you. Good morning, or noon. Um, thank you all very much. Uh, thanks to Sarah, if she's still in here, for invi oh, hi. Um, inviting the Mitchell Foundation to be part of this conversation today with you all. Uh, thanks um, to the panel, Daniel, David. Um, a foundation is only as good as its grantees and uh, resources for the future and CATF um, have been one of our longtime grantees on a variety of work and it's great to share a panel with them and thank you also to Kevin. Um, I think a role that I can play for you all today is to bring the Permian to life. We've seen a lot of data, we've seen a lot of graphs, we've seen a lot of maps and you'll see some more from me. But I'm from Midland. Um, my parents lived there up until about four years ago um, for 45 years. My dad was an executive with ARCO for his entire career, and like Mr. Sheffield, I'm the child of an ARCO executive. Um, he was given the golden parachute from ARCO in 1985. Um, in 1979, Midland had the highest per capita ownership of Rolls Royces. And in 1985, my dad was laid off. Um, boom and bust isn't new. The Permian is the bright, shiny object right now for a lot of people, but production there is not new. Economic impact is not new. Environmental impact is not new, although the structure of it and the spatial qualities of it have changed. 
Oh, that's my. Um, can y'all put my slides on? Um, I've also worked for Mr. Mitchell. I was hired by him over 20 years ago. I've worked for three generations of Mitchells now, and it's a great honor to work for such a generous and um, respected family. Um, Mr. Mitchell, besides being an early pioneer in shale development that you all might know, he was also a um, committed conservationist. And at one of the board meetings in 2012, he admonished us, as staff and his family who make up the board, um, to establish a program that looks at the environmental and social impacts of shale development as a legacy issue. And so we have, we did that, and one of the things that we have focused on in the last several years um, within that program is looking at specifically at development, not just in the Permian, but really where development is growing, um, the, the Delaware Basin and even further west um, into the Trans-Pecos area. This is what it looks like. Um, so again, I'm going to bring some of this to life for you all. Um, I don't know if any of you all have been to the Big Bend uh, National Park, if you've ever been to some of the small towns, um, Fort Davis, Alpine, Marfa, um, in West Texas, but this is what it looks like. It doesn't look like Midland. There's not that much attractiveness about Midland, but these places that are west of Midland are profoundly beautiful. Um, well, I won't go into detail on that. Our program that I'll just describe very briefly because I want to get to the impacts is looking at the science. So saying what impacts on ecology are going to happen from development, you can't really do that. Uh, same problem with economics uh, that Daniel talked about. We don't even know exactly spatially we can say how many barrels are going to be produced or something, but it's very difficult to say spatially where this development's going to happen. So our program is to try and predict spatially where development is going to happen and then say where those ecological impacts are, are going to occur and what they're going to look like. Our goal is to have coordinated um, landscape scale development happen with intention so that the benefits of these new resources can be enjoyed, but the negative consequences of uncoordinated development are mitigated. Um, the key steps in our program are to work with communities so that this self-determined community, small communities, very uh, independent-minded folks, if you've ever been out there, um, or have lived out there is to lead a process where community folks say they develop their own conservation vision for their region in the face of energy development. Uh, using scientists at the Bureau of Economic Geology at University of Texas, um, they are projecting the future development. I have a few maps. Then estimating those ecological impacts 
and then apply appropriate mitigation actions. Can you all run that video now? It's a short video. It's <laughs> the Trans-Pecos is iconic Texas. Dark skies, so it's coveted properties. And what's happening now is that the character of that landscape is markedly changing. The Permian Basin oil field yielded almost 30 billion barrels of oil and 75 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. When you look at all the different plays that are there, it's one of the biggest reservoirs in the world. There are more and more wind turbines, very large solar facilities, transmission lines, pipelines, new roads and infrastructure. It's an industrialized landscape. We gained seven motels in 18 months. The area of Midland, Odessa is trying to keep up with housing. Two-bedroom apartments costing more than $2,000 a month, and some say that's not even the start of it. These small communities have never seen anything like it. You don't really see it until you're in the middle of it, and sometimes that's too late. The impact is happening predominantly to families who have been on the land for generations. You know, the growing footprint from energy to meet our ever-growing demand for energy. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge we have to recognize. There's this whole national narrative right now on the value and the impacts of natural gas and oil versus renewables. All of that is now centered in West Texas. As we develop new innovations, this same issue is going to come to communities across the nation. Once you get it wrong, it's really hard to go back. That's what many of us fear will happen if the status quo is followed. What we're doing with the Mitchell Foundation has the potential to be a template for energy development around the world. We need to rethink everything. I hope that we have started soon enough. Thanks. You can bring my slides up again now. So, um, thank you. I want to talk about these three counties. This is called the Tri-County Area, Jeff Davis, Brewster, and Presidio County. If you look at Reeves, right north of Jeff Davis, there's a lot of activity going on. You all know that already. Um, we're really focused um, and in those three counties um, in the outline, the red outline. The reason why, because <clears throat> production is growing to the west and to the south. So the only thing to, to realize on this map, it's showing that the gray colors are where production, the trend slope is negative. Those are old wells that are, that's areas of decline. The dark colors are areas of growth. So those areas around pa Pecos, Balmeray, if you know where that is, Balmeray Pool, um, this is recent exploration across the Permian. All, the, all that green are new wells since 2008. This is uh, historic development outside the Permian. So it's not unheard of to develop resource or explore for resource outside the Permian into the west. That little tiny hash mark that you can see in the orange um, that's the Presidio, 
that yesterday there was an article, an Australian firm called Helios, for some strange reason, um, has decided to try to redevelop that little field. Um, there's a lot of questions about whether they'll end up get, getting the VC funding that they're looking for. But uh, anyway, so there is development that we're anticipating in the Tri-County region. Um, as you notice from the, I'll just mention this, uh, as you notice from the video, we're also focused on renewables development and their associated transmission lines. The Bureau of Economic Geology says that, that this area is the most energy intensive area in the world and part of it is because of solar and wind development. The only thing to know here to note is uh, the, the blue, the light blue and the dark blue growth in wind. The dark blue are already financed projects so they will be built. The light blue are uh, pending financing. Same with solar, the growth is huge and it's gonna go in Chihuahuan Desert. Perfectly good Chihuahuan Desert to ship those electrons to Houston and elsewhere and you'll lose half the electrons getting there. Um, wind needs windy areas, solar needs sunny areas, it's all there, these are service roads. Um, and transmission, this is pipelines and transmission lines. It's a lot of infrastructure. We call it energy sprawl. When you add oil and gas, roads, associated facilities, renewables, transmission, roads to those facilities, it's a lot of infrastructure in a place that, as you saw, needs protection. One of the ways that we're, this is just an example of a layering. These, the green are grasslands, the gray are uh, wells. This is just one example of what we're doing in the project. Um, you'll see uh, up in Culberson County, which is just uh, north and west of Balmeray, where the gray of the oil development is starting to um, overtake the grasslands, and that's where the habitat is, that's where the species are. So the impacts, the Chihuahuan Desert is the most biodiverse region in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, it's the Trans-Pecos region, it's desert grassland, again, that's the dark green area, that's where the species are. It's desert scrub, it's mountain ranges, it's called mountain islands and desert seas out there. Um, relatively high mountains for Texas, surrounded by flat, hot desert animals. There's lots of them, 120 mammals, over, 100, or over 500 um, migratory birds, and over 170 herps. That's a little horn toad that I grew up uh, seeing and playing with, and very hard to find one anymore. Uh, we talked about flaring. We know the climate impacts of flaring. Uh, if you've ever been out to Fort Davis, the University of Texas and McDonald Observatory, um, has uh, that area there um, is some of the darkest skies in the world and the McDonald Observatory has the largest telescope looking at uh, dark, deep dark space um, and they need dark skies particularly it's very sensitive to flaring and we expect and already see the impacts and you can see in that picture the impacts of flaring um, surrounding the area, surrounding the observatory. This is Balmeray Pool, it's the largest spring-fed pool in the world. It's where I grew up going swimming, it's two hour drive south of Midland. 
Uh, it's fed by um, San Solomon Springs that um, pessimists expect uh, to be heavily impacted if not destroyed by oil and gas development, which I think and many people think from polling that we've done that that might be a line in the sand for the industry. Drying up this pool that's a major resource for the entire region, a recreational resource and ecotourism, um, will have a heavy impact, social impact, on the industry's social license to operate in the Permian. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, water and disposal. Uh, the thing to note on this graph or map, the gray circle is produced water. The blue circle, if you look at the Delaware, that huge one on the left, the blue circle is all the water that's needed for fracking. So even if you use all the water that's produced for fracking, you reuse it, you still have a tremendous amount of water that has to be disposed of. In a place that we believe the Bureau of Economic Geology, which is a state geologist and runs the seismicity program for the state of Texas, believe that this is a, um, an area, a region that will have seismicity events um, with all of this produced water going underground. It's just a tremendous amount of produced water. Um, if you dispose of this water uh, on the ground, which some people and companies are talking about, this is um, an 80-year-old scar from saltwater disposal, a billion barrels of saltwater disposal called the Texon scar. Uh, this is about, I think, uh, 2,000, 3,000 acres. 80 years, they're still trying to restore this land. You can't restore Chihuahuan Desert. So what needs to change? Uh, we want to go big. We want to go early. You might say, why do anything in the Tri-County area of Texas? Because there's no resource there and no one's going to go there. We believe that if they don't go there now, if the price isn't right, if the technology's right, the resource is there, and at some point it will be developed. You can't go in afterwards. There's no use going to the Eagleford and saying, how, how should we have addressed uh, development impacts? So we want to go er, in early to the Tri-County area, and we want to go big, meaning at the landscape scale, the Chihuahuan Desert scale. That's a beautiful picture. I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Marilyn. Okay. Those were uh, three very, very compelling and quite nuanced presentations. I, maybe just to highlight a little bit, we got a view from, we got a view from the human side, the economic and distributional side of the story from Daniel. Uh, David took us through the air and the atmosphere, uh, the pollutants everyone talks about and the ones that everyone uh, lives with daily uh, with breathing issues. Uh, and, uh, and Mary Lou took us into some fairly nuanced territory, including the idea that, that even in Texas where they love their oil and gas, there may be lines in the sand, uh, things you can do that go too far. And also the reminder that green electrons are not an unalloyed good. Uh, you have land use challenges with renewable energy too. Welcome to the big time, uh, wind and solar. You, you, can, you can have environmental challenges also. Uh, so th those are very, very nuanced topics. I wanna, I'm gonna again, give this mostly to this room full of extremely smart, 
and curious people. But out of pure selfishness, having this panel at, at my disposal, I want to indulge myself with a few questions first. I wanted to, to start with the, the perspective. Daniel, I'll direct this primarily to you, but I'd like to hear from all of you if I could. Um, someone might say, well, there's a lot of talk about this just transitioning that needs to happen in these producing areas. And Daniel, your nuanced point was that climate mitigation puts the livelihood that's been described of a lot of these folks at risk and could, could intensify the peaks and valleys of a boom-bust cycle, possibly a valley of death even, if, if you're really shutting stuff down. Um, is, is this really the first challenge for a region like this that is undergoing so much economic growth? Is this the thing that, that should be at the top of the priority list? Or are there other challenges that, that maybe pulling folks up should be part of the story too? It's a really good question, and, it, and it's a, a hard one. So I've, I've spent a lot of time traveling around to different uh, parts of the United States where oil and gas is produced talking mostly with local government officials and talking about these questions, how do you think about managing the near-term challenges and how do you think about managing the long-term challenges? My uh, sense of their answers to that question is during a boom period when population is growing rapidly, you're trying to provide services for the people who are coming, you're trying to accommodate the industry's needs. Um, there's a lot of trying to keep your head above water uh, to get to tomorrow and get to next week and install the you know, wastewater infrastructure that you need for next year uh, to deal with the growth in population. And there, there's less, I think, focus on the long term and less focus on the economic diversification piece that I mentioned as one way to potentially protect against a scenario that you described where climate policy really bites uh, and starts to you know, eat into demand in a way that affects the Permian Basin. And so I have not seen a lot of that type of long-term thinking. Um, I think it would be useful to start that thinking. I think, it would be, it, I think it's a really hard topic to even broach um, because of the, you know, the, the political climate and all the controversy that surrounds some of the proposals that are on the table. It's a hard thing to talk about, but if we're serious about thinking about mitigating the long-term impacts of climate change, and we're serious about you know, wanting oil and gas producing regions to prosper in the long-term, then we have to s try to start thinking about how to bring those two worlds together and have that conversation. Well, I think that there's also the argument that this is one of the lower cost, more prolific producing regions, and the demand curve doesn't fall off like a cliff in even the most you know, optimistic mitigation situations. So maybe this is the field you keep growing, right? That's entirely possible, yeah. As a matter of fact, for gas, even in the most optimistic scenarios, it keeps going up until 2040, 2045, mm -hmm. at least globally. So it's here. It's going to be here for a while. And <clears throat> um, I think in recent months, we've heard quite a bit from industry about that social license to operate and how they can't, we can't keep showing images like I showed if they want to keep that social license. And I think that's why there's been a fair bit of industry opposition to what EPA wants to do to, reduce, you know, to remove leak detection requirements. So because you're referring not, to the August 29th proposal to? Correct. Okay. And, um, and so we're seeing some pushback that this isn't good for the industry to remove standards in the face of questions about social license to operate. 
and the information, you know, the, just the data on what the impacts are. So I think there is that concern, you know, and I, I, I think your question is a very important question, a very difficult question, but it shouldn't be thought of in binary terms. Um, you know, just a boom, a boom scenario and a bust scenario. Well, right. Mary Lou, did you have some thoughts on, on this? You, this particular question of climate uh, mitigation potentially creating economic challenge and whether or how to wrestle with it? I think, well, 2040 is only 20 years away. So I think we do have a transition time um, of 20 years, but 20 years is a pretty short amount of time. Um, I think um, who knows what will happen, but boom and bust in the Permian, like I said, is not new, but say a price on carbon, whether that's an internalized price from regulation or a tax or something, I don't know that any work has been done that where we could really specify what the direct impact on the Permian specifically would be from that. But I think the industry, the leaders in the industry are already thinking about this and in some ways already internalizing it into their operations and their economics and it won't be news to them. Um, some of the smaller operators I think in the Permian um, will probably be directly impacted. The, uh, the dichotomy between the larger, more resourced, more diverse portfolio companies and some of the smaller operators is, is, not, a, is not a new dichotomy. Uh, it comes up a lot in the context of regulation. And uh, I suspect that there's, there's probably a lot of folks whose voices don't, uh, they don't feel that their voices are being heard in this discussion because it puts them at such disadvantage. Uh, I wanted to ask a, a question that's maybe a sensitive one. You guys were a little Texocentric. Uh, I'm aware that apparently the Permian Basin extends across the borders that man drew into this other state. Sounds like New Mexico or something like that. I also noticed that politically speaking, although our parties mean nothing to the rocks, uh, apparently there's a new party in power in New Mexico with some, uh, some flaring thoughts and, and even for that matter water disposal thoughts on that side of the basin. Could you guys, whoever wants to weigh on this, maybe contrast or, or observe similarities and differences about the regulatory approaches across the border? So, yeah, I can speak briefly on some of the fiscal issues that I, that I mentioned. So managing the sort of local impacts, infrastructural impacts, the education impacts, things like that. Uh, New Mexico's tax structure basically a, a allows for more revenue to flow to the localities uh, from oil and gas production. It also allows for more long-term savings funds uh, that the state has accumulated over time from production in the San Juan Basin and also now increasingly production in the Permian. And so there is definitely a different approach. Um, the, the history and origins of that approach, I, I wonder if anyone in the room knows sort of how those two models developed alongside each other. I certainly don't. I'd be really interested to learn that history. But um, I think managing impacts you see the same challenges on both sides of the border. New Mexico, I think, has some approaches that uh, probably help mitigate those impacts a little better uh, than we've seen in Texas. Other thoughts on the Permian, the other Permian? <laughs> um, I would agree with Daniel. I have heard anecdotally um, in discussions and conversations that uh, the, the changes in New Mexico might drive well, or limit production in New Mexico, more focused on the Texas side. 
Let me ask one last and maybe most difficult question of the ones I've asked. It, it, we heard from Rusty uh, that $57 a barrel is an absolutely fine price to grow production very continuously into the future. But there's also scenarios that could lie ahead economically, could bring the price down. Are the discussions you guys are having harder to have at $40 or $35 a barrel than they might be at, at $55 or, or $75? Is, this, is it the luxury of, of sound economic context that makes this, this discussion easier, or does it not change? Whoever would like to? I'll start again and just, just briefly say that uh, I spent a lot of time in the Bakken in North Dakota, and they had a really big boom. Prices were up you know, $100 a barrel, 2012 to 2014. The price crashed at the end of 2014, and the crash actually gave them some time to build up their infrastructure. They had, because they had saved money uh, during the boom, the state had amassed a substantial uh, amount of, of money that they could allocate to the local governments to build up the infrastructure, to invest in schools, to invest in roads. And so as activity has been coming back, it's been easier for them to manage. So a, a, a temporary downturn, at least for some of the issues that I've focused on, these local impact issues can actually be helpful in allowing communities to catch up to the demand that might be coming in the future. I think what I would say is that, you know, that same boom is happening in Colorado. Mm -hmm. So in, in 2014, Colorado put through comprehensive rules, first, first in the nation to attack methane uh, with a very comprehensive leak detection program. And um, we had the, we had the, the bust that, that occurred, I guess, at the end of that year. Um, and then prices came back and the rigs came back, just like they did everywhere else. Was there pushback, though, against the environmental regime when the price, or, or moving ahead with an environmental agenda at a lower price? I think that overall, overall, as it's, it's simply such a small cost that um, there will be pushback by firms who say, well, we don't want any additional costs. They will say that if, if oil is $90, and they will say that if oil is $40, quite frankly. Uh, and then there are other firms that, that sort of understood that in Colorado they needed to defend their social license, which is a big deal in Colorado, and um, they understood that they could take these measures in stride. So when you, when you look at the rig counts, they don't, you cannot see these regulatory uh, events in the rig count graphs. Um, going all the way back to 2009 when they started to regulate completions in Colorado, way ahead of everybody else. Same thing in, in the Upper Green in Wyoming, which is a, a very tightly regulated basin. So we've got standards across the nation in, you know, what, seven, eight states, and we, we can't see those standards pushing out development. So I, I, I think the costs are so low that the argument is very similar. Mary Lou, sustainability at a high and low price? Yeah, I, I'm going to be kind of indelicate, I guess, um, which I'm known to be sometimes. So if Boeing can't build a safe airplane, they, shouldn't, they can't afford to build it. They shouldn't put airplanes in the sky, right? Nobody wants to fly on one of those MD-800s or whatever they were. If if an oil company, if a producer can't responsibly produce their product, 
they shouldn't be in the business. So we think that, um, I will be delicate in saying this sort of, that the producers who can economically and responsibly produce their product should dominate um, the market and that perhaps there should be some consolidation um, of the small companies or wildcatters who can't afford to produce responsibly in an economic way. Well, I appreciate the responses to my, my indulgence. Uh, let me take some from the crowd though. You have many questions, starting with you. What was the time frame for your water chart? It doesn't have a, a year's, was it a one year chart? Or? The, the bubbles? Yeah, um, uh, maybe I'll come back to you on that. And, and, and secondly, could you repeat the name of the pool that might dry up? Balmeray. Balmeray, thank you. And finally, um, I wasn't sure how you came up, this is a bigger question with the tri-county area. How, what, why is that, where did that definition come from? I mean, the, the, the borderline that you showed of, you know, where you're concerned, what's um, the basis for that? Well, that's, the tri-county area is kind of a known entity in the region. It, it incorporates part of the Delaware. Um, it is right on the border of the Alpine High and the Reeves County development that we expect could grow south. It's the, the place where the iconic communities Fort Davis, Alpine, Marfa, the Big Bend National Park, and State Park. So it's sort of a front line for you guys. Right. And then a, a big question that might take three hours to answer. If, um, if a Democrat wins next year, given the quality of the debate that I saw on CNN, which was horrifically poor in terms of their understanding of reality, what do you actually think is going to happen? Because it seems almost 80% of the current candidates are saying ban fracking. How do you think this will actually play out if we do get a democratic win? Thanks. Does anyone want to take that? <laughs> I, for a living, I write research about answering that question. Um, I will. But uh, I, I will so, defer to the panel if anyone has an answer. Um, I didn't watch the, I guess you're talking about the climate thing. I didn't watch it. Um, there are some states who have banned fracking, but I don't think I don't think it matters who's elected. There's not going to be a ban on fracking in the United States. It's, it's not possible. It's a compelling question. Uh, New Hampshire bravely banned fracking in the Granite State, uh, and so I, I would note that the the incidence of, of horizontal wells has been zero since the ban. It's very effective. Uh, another question, Sarah. I think I saw your hand. Please, when you when you take a question, identify yourself. Our speakers may not have been paying attention when you asked before. Yeah, uh, Sarah Emerson. Um, this is a question for Mary Lou, um, and you did bring the Permian to life, thank you. Um, but my question is a clarification on the, on the wind development in that area. Um, I thought you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the uh, transmission lines were losing as much as 50% of power by the time they get to congestion areas. Are these HVDCs or are these a, some kind of AC transmission, because they shouldn't be losing that? Well, that is just, it's not an exact number. Um, it's just to illustrate the inefficiency of building transmission 600 miles from the Chihuahuan Desert to Houston. 
Um, the, I should probably not say that in this sophisticated of a crowd. <laughs> I'm going to get your answer to the, that, the bubble graph, um, that study, we funded it, the Bureau of Economic Geology, Bridget Scanlon. It's not, it's pending publication, it's not published right now, and so off the top of my head, I don't know the exact time, but I'm happy to get your card or something and send that to you. The loss. Other questions? Yes, in the back. Hi, uh, thank you. Hi, Jordan. Uh, this time I'm going to confidently go with the pronunciation of any. Um, so, uh, just one thing. Um, thank you for bringing up the pool, by the way. I actually grew up in Texas and have swam there, and it is a, a beautiful landmark. Um, and it is definitely something that needs to be preserved. Um, my question, though, is actually for Daniel um, regarding the short-term economic impact in uh, Midland and the general Permian area. Um, I think sometimes conventional economic measures don't really do justice what's happening there. For instance, high housing prices is one thing, um, but low housing supply is another. So it's not just that people are paying more for houses, it's that, I mean, you have people living in RVs and motorhomes who are making over $100,000 a year because that's just where they're living. That's the only place they can live. And uh, the social impact is also um, in incredible. It's you, mostly young men without families who are going there to live there. Um, and so if you could just speak a little bit to how it's impacting things in a less measurable sense. So how does the community feel? Uh, how does it affect uh, social connection? Um, and what does it make it look like to, to live there day by day? Thank you. Sure, so um, it's, it's a really complex question and the effects go different ways for different people, right? Different people have many, have different experiences. I tried to highlight some of the, you know, different groups who might experience things differently. I think, you know, the, the pricing metrics that I showed for homes, I think that reflects the lack of supply uh, that you're referring to. And, um, in some parts of the country, when we've had these big booms, there, there have been people who have lived in, in unsafe living conditions. Uh, it's pretty rare. Uh, I, I haven't been to the Permian in a year and a half. Last time I was there, I was actually swimming with Mary Lou in Balmoray. She didn't get in, but I got in. Um, and, uh, and so I'm not sure exactly what things are like today. And I also don't want to speak for people who live in the community, because I certainly don't. Um, but I will say that you do have these negative social impacts. They're hard to quantify. There are also positive social impacts. Uh, there are people who you know, return to live in the community that they never would have returned to before had it not been for the oil and gas industry. So a North Dakota story, you know, I was speaking with someone in North Dakota whose two kids moved back to Williston uh, because they could now find work in the industry, whereas before they had moved away to you know, Minneapolis or something like that. Uh, and so there, this is just a way to say it's complicated. Uh, and, and that different people have different experiences, and I, I can't characterize whether on net it's good or bad uh, at this point. The research doesn't tell us enough about that. Mary Lou? I, I have a couple anecdotes, because um, I think you were asking for sort of not measurable things, but just stories. Um, so even when I was in high school, when in the 70s boom, uh, 
you know, you can't get people, you can't find people to work at, say, a restaurant because those people can go make the 100,000 or more um, out on the oil field who can't find enough people to work for them either. It's not like there's hordes of people who want to go live in Midland. Um, so it's hard to attract people a lot of times unless they're extremely high paying jobs and they're not going to be restaurant they're not going to keep a restaurant job when they can go out and earn a lot more money. So you go to a restaurant in Midland now, and half the restaurant is empty, and you have to wait an hour for a table. And it's because they have two waiters. And so because the other two or five didn't show up that day because they went out and got a different job. My dad, so very personal story, my dad died alone because his nurse didn't show up. And her husband had gotten a job and they just left out in the field. Um, this was a few years ago. And my sister and I didn't even know he had died. He laid there for eight hours during that shift um, in our, his home and was dead for hours and we didn't even know. So it's very personal and it's a hassle when you wait an hour to get a salad at a restaurant because they only have two waiters. Same thing with clothing stores, um, you know, Walmarts, I mean everything. It really pervades all of the different sectors that have, that are not, I don't know, what would you say, the trades or something and not the executives in downtown Midland and the office buildings. Thank you for that very personal story. We have time for one more uh, over in the center there. Thanks, um, Isabel Muni. I work with Oxfam's oil, gas, and mining program. Um, I just had a question for the panel. Um, I was surprised to hear that um, our colleagues from ENI as well as Chevron um, didn't mention the oil and gas climate initiative. I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. There will be a big event on the 23rd. Uh, we've been invited to attend a CEO stakeholder roundtable about methane emissions reductions targets. Um, so this includes Aramco, CNPC, all the majors. So I'm curious you know, what, what your thoughts are on that, and then I would also report we work in about 30 countries on oil, gas, and mining issues, and there is already talk in other countries about development in the Permian and its role in global production over the next decade um, in impacting prices. So this is just to just throw another data point that the eyes of the world are turning towards the Permian as well, for sure from civil society. David, do you want to be maybe the first voice on RGCI? <coughs> sure. Um, we don't. My group is very small, so we have uh, little direct interface with OGCI. You know, we, we see their standards and, um, or, or I should say their target, and um, it's an ambitious target. Um, something is a little bit so, something is a little bit lost, though, because of the enormous gap between where the industry in the U.S. is and where those companies say they are today. Um, so we accept that there is variation from company to company. Anybody who goes out into the field can see it. It's visible. But um, nevertheless, I think what's really key for those initiatives, and those initiatives have a critical role 
in countries where civil society and environmental um, advocacy has no history, basically. And there are many uh, large oil and gas producing countries that that's just not an, a very um, viable path forward, at least now. Um, but these initiatives, and there are quite a few, they, they really need to be radically transparent. And, um, you know, in the U.S., we actually have a fairly good uh, standard in terms of at least the aspirations of our greenhouse gas reporting program, where individual facilities are reporting what they have on site and what it emits. And so you can go there and you can see, is that, what, is that what's there? And is that, do those emissions line up with what we see in the plume coming off of that site? And without that kind of granular, transparent data, it's hard to know what to make of, an, of a pledge, um, especially for a global, you know, a, a, a major with sprawling operations across continents, and then, oop, our leak rate is this. That, that, that's, doesn't, it, that's unverifiable. So um, they, those, those voluntary initiatives absolutely have a role, um, but they really need that transparency and um, granular data to be, um, to really fulfill what they're trying to do. And, you know, having said that, <clears throat> we, you know, we don't really see the consolidation that you're talking about happening terribly quickly. And at least in the U.S. and Canada, in many other places, there will always be this um, wide variety of firms out there. And so that's why our primary approach is for enforceable standards that everyone meets. I will be, our energy program officer will be at the GCI meeting coming up. And I would just say, I mean, we're not really working on methane, and, but the, we are working with them on CCS and think that they have an important voice and role and leadership position in that related um, issue. Daniel, any other Yeah, and I, I'd agree with David that the monitoring and verification and data provision is really, really important for that effort. I mean, I'm certainly encouraged to see the aspiration. Um, the, the other thing I would say is that uh, from a sort of public-facing perspective, you know, it's often said that the industry is defined by its worst actors, right? Um, the OGCI is certainly setting a very aspirational, very ambitious target, um, but there are plenty uh, of operators who are, um, you know, not interested in, in pursuing those types of activities. In 2016, I went to two conferences a couple weeks apart, Sarah Week in Houston with all the big players, and then a smaller conference in Pennsylvania with smaller players at Shale. And the difference on messaging with regard to climate change was really, really stark. Uh, and I think while those disparities in messaging exist, it's going to continue to be difficult for OGCI to get whatever credit it might deserve uh, for its you know, worthwhile actions. Well, I want to do two things here. Uh, first and foremost, I want, to, I want to thank the panelists for their excellent job. So. 
second, I want to invite Sarah Ladislaw, who is, I think, as you all may recall from the first panel of the day, the, the head of the Energy and Natural Security Program, a Natural Security Program, and also an SVP here at, at CSIS. Thank you very much. So this is just my job to say thank you. A uh, lot of work goes into these panels. It's a really important discussion. Uh, as you can see, there's a dichotomy of use about a really important asset being produced in the United States. We believe in talking about that range of views and thinking about how industry and government and uh, policymakers and civil society can work together to find solutions to some of these issues. So I really appreciate everybody for participating in the conversation today. I want to say thank you to my colleague Frank Ferrestro, Andrew Stanley, who were instrumental in putting this together, and my other colleagues Lisa, Ian, Lachlan, and Guy, uh, who make all of this possible. So thanks very much for joining us today, and we hope we'll get to do it again soon. Thanks. Really great job.